You understand the meaning of the word foreboding. As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Well, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because love says live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. His job was to recruit the best. I would like to welcome you here to the CIA special training facility. Those of you who do graduate will be official cover operatives. And then he found someone who was perfect. You graduated top of your class at MIT. You're agile, athletic. I am recruiting you. Would I have to kill anyone? Would you like to? He will trade him. Nintendo. He will push him. Reach the parking lot with an asset who intends to have sex with him. You want us to pick up a girl? Five, actually. Looking good? Thanks. He will challenge him. Rule number one. Do not get caught. I love this part. Go, go! Yes! I am a scary judge of talent. And he will bring him into a secret world. Welcome to CIA. Where nothing is what it seems. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Above the Title, a podcast about Colin Farrell and the Cole, let me extent. let me cut you off. I think we, this should be a podcast about Kevin Costner in the 1987 film No Way Out. <laughs> I think that'd be a lot more interesting. <laughs> do you want to do you want to know a, a, a true story? I've uh, actually, sure, go for it. I, I've never seen No Way Out. Let me make I've sure like, that actually is. No, that's, you know, no, yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I, I've almost watched No Way Out like five times and I've just never pulled the trigger. Wow. You've never even no started it. I might have seen like the first five minutes or something. I've definitely we I, I there was one there's one scene in it that I weirdly watched like two times in film school, like two different professors used like interesting the, this like lengthy shot of them in a limo i think maybe fucking oh um, yeah that's like the very beginning of the movie yeah, yeah yeah i've seen that but i've never seen um this is not a kevin costner podcast no Connor. <laughs> you want this to be a kevin costner podcast for someone who hates the greatest american film ever made <laughs> more blasphemy ivan reitman's draft day you really want this to be a Kevin Costner podcast. You need to watch No Way Out, Cole. Like you yeah. specifically would love. I do. It. Yeah, yeah, I do. I've never seen that, and I know Cole. Let me tell you. Um. Okay. So for anybody that's listening, I think Cole's grand thesis about the magic of the movies is that all good movies are about good-looking people wanting to kiss each other. This is a hundred percent my grand thesis. Yes. And there's almost no better example of that than No Way Out. And and. No way out subverts that halfway through in the most thrilling way imaginable. So you're, you're telling me it is in fact about Hackman wanting to scooch Costner. <laughs> no, but there is <laughs> there is another male character who who very clearly wants to wants Spooch. to splooch Costner. <laughs> there's there's a story on um I think they said this on the, the blank check episode about for love of the game. So questionable veracity just because i'm hearing it like third hand but i believe that the story that they say is that (laughs) hackman credits that movie with like his 90s comeback 
not not because oh, that really? movie not not so much because that movie was a hit but because working with costner like reinvigorated his desire to to give a shit in movies again that he was he was basically done and making that movie reminded him why he got into acting in the first place i would uh, i would love to believe that they they it's a lovely do not, story they do not have that many scenes together in the film um, I really don't want to spoil that film because it's an amazing film that not enough people, especially people of our generation, if you want to count us as separate generations, with the four year age gap, whatever, fuck off your generation, my generation. That's a film that everybody should watch and then have a good time watching it. And it's one of the sexiest movies ever made. All right. Yes. Yeah, and, I know. Um, that's just what it's one of my biggest blind spots. I know. Yeah. I also have you ever seen um, After Dark, my sweet? Um, which is the movie? The movie he makes. I don't. Believe no, no, no. So. I'm I'm actually even confusing that with another movie. Never mind. Um, ignore me. That's a that's a. Ignore me. I'm I'm confusing. <laughs> Why did I see that on his filmography? That's so weird. Are you thinking, saw, Are you talking about um Donaldson or about? I, no, I saw when I was looking at Roger Donaldson's filmography earlier today. I saw the James Foley movie. After Dark, My Sweet listed. And I was just like, oh, that makes sense. But I'm, I'm completely wrong. Um, and it's not even there now. I don't know what I'm saying. You know, you know what I do like, though? Have you ever seen The Bank Job? The state have, movie. Yes. That movie's incredible. <laughs> um, this is not a Kevin Costner podcast. This is not a Jason Statham podcast. This is above <laughs> the title. Uh, this is a podcast about the man, the myth, the legend, Colin Farrell. Uh, and the reason... Connor wants to talk about Kevin Costner is because Connor likes Yellowstone for some reason. Um, but the other reason is that today I appreciate we, Yellowstone. I've literally never seen an episode of Yellowstone. I like watching it when I work out because it's just about um, overly gruff men being like, this is what life is. This is how you become a man. <laughs> I was I was I was while they're literally <laughs> shoveling like cow shit. They say that to each other. I was at my grandmother's house watching the Oscars uh, a few nights ago. And she was mentioning for some reason, Cole Hauser came up again. <laughs> the, the, the secret mascot <laughs> of this fan. podcast. Our but fan she, favorite. She brought him up, but I swear to God, she didn't say Cole Hauser. She said Rip Wheeler. Rip from Yellowstone. And, and I'm like, why the hell do you think I know who Cole Hauser's <laughs> character on Yellowstone is. Um, but no, Connor mentioned No Way Out because we today we are talking about The Recruit, which is directed by Roger Donaldson, who also made No Way Out and made The Bank Job and made some other pe- movies that people like and also made this movie. He's made good movies. He's made good movies. Yeah. He also made Species. He also made Species, uh, uh, which is a good time at the movies. It's not a very Perhaps. good movie. It is, this is the <laughs> second week in a row Species has come up. I know. Enough. Species quietly like the first or second movie from one of uh, Connor's secret favorite actors. I don't know if he even knows that. Who are we? Michelle Williams. I'm trying to... oh, oh. Michelle Williams is, Williams is young Natasha Hentridge in the is first scene really? of that movie. I haven't yeah, seen when, that in a while. That's a classic to, like... like um, that's a classic like teenage Connor was flipping through HBO and stars at like one in the morning on a weekend. And that movie was on. And I started 45 yeah. minutes in and watched oh. till the end. <laughs> she's, 
Michelle Williams is literally like in the first scene when like they're doing the government's doing tests on her and they try to like poison her. They like pump poison gas into this cage she's in. Oh wow. And she's like begging them to let her out and she's a little girl and it's really upsetting. Wow. We and then she do... escapes and she turns into <laughs> Natasha Hendridge. Natasha Hendridge. Yeah. yeah We're on one today, gang. We are excited to talk about the recruit. We're not excited to talk about the recruit. <laughs> you can tell by how high energy we are. Uh, we're also bummed because Colin Farrell did not win the Academy Award for Best Actor. Yeah, we saw and it Banshee's, coming. Uh, we saw it coming. Banshee's getting fully snubbed. Sucks, right? That doesn't surprise me at all, though, because that film is so allegorical about the cultural history of Ireland. Maybe. Something that so few Americans know about, despite there being so many Irish Americans. But it, it, it was the second nomination leader of the entire know, ceremony. But like, that confused me, I think. That, that in itself confused me. I, I think you're understating how well that movie played with audiences, personally. Everybody um, I know who's not a film person who watched that movie told me that they were horrified by it and how cynical it is and oh. left with no hope in the persistence of humanity. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> I know who's not a film person who watched it told me they thought it was lovely and sad. Wow. Okay. Like I get, I kind of get tar blanking, even though I think people sometimes discount the intellectualism of the academy as a as a board i but i kind of get tar blanking it's the elvis and the elvis fableman's banshees all going home completely empty-handed is is wild to me and i I know uh, i'm a bit of an everything everywhere skeptic but like that's just ridiculous well we're oddly almost in the same exact boat on everything everywhere yeah yeah which is like we we don't think it's a terrible movie. We like no. we enjoyed watching it a lot. It's uh, the you didn't enjoy that. watching it. Oh, okay. No, I, I find it very grating. I I had a good time when I was watching it. It wasn't until um like the afterburn, the aftertaste of the film set in that it that and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily like I was loving it while I was watching it. I was more just elated by the fact that they were attempting to do something that people uh you know narrative lovers and film lovers and filmmakers have been talking about doing for years now um but yeah after the fact i it just didn't sit as well with me as i would like i still like i I would recommend it to people who might be interested in that kind of humor specifically but i as an I want, awards piece, I, I wasn't really interested in. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy the people who won won though because they did make good speeches and I, <laughs> I I'm mad about the Jamie Lee Curtis of it all. That, that, one, that that's like the worst performance she's ever given. I'm sorry. Bar bar that one. I didn't bar get the that one. I yeah, I, yeah. I do not I do not begrudge Kahikwan anything. Nope. I do not begrudge. Do I think Michelle Yeoh? was best in show in that category no do i even think she was second best no but she's michelle yo i'm not i i'm stealing this analogy i saw this analogy on twitter earlier today which i think is right i think this is how this is going to age 
2000, the 2000 Oscars, mm-hmm. when Julia Roberts wins Best Actress. Is that Aaron Ev- Brockovich? Aaron Brockovich, yes. Yeah. Everyone, I think, today, pretty much, it is, it is generally considered an accepted truth that Ellen Burstyn probably should have won that Oscar for Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. I, I, I'm personally actually a little softer on the Burstyn performance, but I feel like that is the consensus take is that that Ellen Burstyn performance is one of the great performances of the 21st century and should have won the Oscar. But at the same time, no one really begrudges Julia Roberts for winning that Oscar, right? Like no one's mad and no. feels like she stole that from her because everyone also looks at Aaron Brockovich, knows it's a was a huge sensation, knows that Julia Roberts has this like great body of work and that's like her most iconic role. And, and we can hold those two thoughts in our heads. That is kind of how I think in 20 years we're going to think about the Kate Blanchett Michelle Yeoh thing. Can I, tell you personally, yeah. can I tell you personally how I watch the Academy Awards sure. nowadays, just for my own sanity so that it doesn't bother me at all? I'm I'm watching now when I sit down to watch this specific award show, which is probably the only one that I have any investment in at all, despite how little it might be at this point in time compared to how it was when I was a younger cinephile first getting interested in the myth of Hollywood and the myth of the movies is that I, I now look at the ceremony itself in the broadcast as its own entity, as its own piece of work. And I think that regardless of like judgment of the performances in the films, which are not featured within the ceremony of the Academy Awards, I would have rather seen Michelle Yeoh win and get to make that speech than see Kate Blanchett win a, a second time. Nothing sure, against Kate Blanchett. I love yeah. Kate Blanchett. It's just for those purposes. I think I think my personal hang up is that I would like to see Kate Blanchett have an Oscar for a good performance, <laughs> uh, which I and that that whenever <laughs> anyone said, well, Kate Blanchett already has two Oscars. My comeback is always yeah. yes, but she's bad in both those movies. I, I think at the end of the day, though, when you look at all of the all of the winners of Academy Awards, so and the ones who are longstanding mainstays within the world of cinema within Hollywood specifically. Um, there's not so much emphasis on the actual film that they won their award yes. for. You know? They're just referred to as Academy Award yes. winner, Kate Blanchett. Yeah. I am an Oscar psychopath, so I definitely get hung up on what movies people win for. Yeah. More so than... I'm... I don't think Connor, you're wrong for doing so. Connor, Everybody has to find their own Connor, <laughs> thing. That I, they... I swear to God, I'm not doing a bit. I went to Gold Derby this morning to see if they had maybe somehow already put up some movies from for next year that we can start getting odds on (laughs) i'm already thinking about next year's oscars yeah and look here's the thing i don't love michelle yo and everything ever at once i think it's fine i think she's given vastly better performances i think blanchett was better i think riseborough was better we dodged a fucking bullet because Anna de Armas and Michelle Williams also could have won. <laughs> and those performances are both bad. I'm sorry. I come at me. Fableman's I, I haven't seen. I So between last week and this week, I did my big. Uh, you Oscars caught up on a binge. lot of stuff. You kept texting yeah. me. I probably watched. I probably watched 15 films between the recording of last oh. week's podcast and the actual Academy Awards ceremony, mm-hmm. which isn't so crazy for people no like i us. think that's <laughs> for us circle yeah we're but, um, we are recording this listeners like three days after the oscars just a heads up yeah um 
But the thing is, I have not watched The Fablemans yet. I still haven't. And I have not watched Blonde yet because those are both films. The Fablemans, I'm still working through my Spielberg retrospective project before I want to watch it. And Blonde, I'm doing essentially the same thing with Marilyn Monroe. Um, Oh, that's going to make Blonde worse. That's going to make Blonde worse, buddy. I understand that. I understand (laughs) that. But at the same time, there's so many Monroe films that I haven't delved into just because they're not... um, they're not as much of a temple within uh, like the academia of cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're they important films. Be. They should be, but they they're just not. Be. We, we skip the fifties as a culture. You get what I'm saying? We do specifically for that kind Holly- of, if we're talking education. about Hollywood stuff. Yeah. Mm. Um, or if you do, if you do cover the fifties, you tend to cover just uh, musicals or, um, uh, Musicals or films that are more indicative of cinema's function as spectacle and as like travel piece and yeah. the well, way it's, it's also... changing to uh, compete with television and other kind yeah. of leisure activities that were I presenting think, themselves. I think what it is also is that the 50s are when what we think of as like the quote unquote international art cinema like becomes yeah, a too. thing because the you... 50s you get. Truffaut, Bergman, uh, DeSica. I guess DeSica's the 40s. Fellini, Kurosawa, Ozu. Like, that's when all those guys either start or really break into the national stage. The Cannes Film Festival becomes its own thing. Like, Mm -hmm. and I think that combined with that's when Hollywood gets real spectacle-y means that people like to kind of just ignore Hollywood from the Paramount decision to the new Hollywood in a way. It is jarring. We are on such a tangent right now, but I think this is an important discussion. Yeah, it is. It is jarring when you're watching a Hollywood film from 1958 or 1959. And in juxtaposition to films from 1946, it reads like a good movie. And and a lot of them are good movies. But when you have in, in when you have the awareness within your mind that oh, the 400 Blows is coming out at the same exact time that this film is being released. It kind of skews any yeah. any form of judgment that you can make, considering that we it's reached the- a point where those those kinds of really, um, I don't know, really artistically lucid films are, are, are presenting. And there are filmmakers in Europe who are treating film as the premier modern art, not, not necessarily the premier modern and in Asia, yeah. I, 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 um, I was, but not just not just Europe and Asia. No, no, Afri- you're you're 100 yeah, Africa correct. and and South America are going to come a little later uh, into the 60s. Um, but yeah, Oscars, Colin lost. We're all very sad. Mm. I'm very sad. He seems to be having a good time. Uh, I think the stunt they did with the donkey was very tasteless. Personally, <laughs> I I did too. But that's because um, I have seen EO. And all I was thinking about was EO while I was watching that. Uh, he was there with his younger son. It was lovely. He seemed he seemed genuinely happy when um, when Brendan Fraser won. I agree. Uh, another thing that I do because I'm insane is I I rewatch the actual seconds when they say the winner's name because you can see everyone's faces and it's always fun to pay attention yeah. to the faces. Fraser like starts sobbing. Colin seems like legit happy. Austin Butler like grimaces for a second, but then does seem legit happy, but he like takes in that he lost. And then 
<laughs> Mezcal and Nai are just like they don't give a shit. I don't They're know. So how... bored. <laughs> I don't so know bored. how. I don't Mescal, know how... Sorry. <laughs> I don't know how people can take that, um, even as gracefully as they do. Considering I, I imagine myself, and if I was to lose an award at a like bullshit underground short film festival in the middle of like Jersey City, I, I may start bursting out into tears if I don't get picked as the Have winner you... for that. So I just cannot imagine losing an Academy Award. The the best one of these to watch, and anyone, I, I advise going and looking this up. Four years ago, Best Actress, the 2018, 2019, whatever you want to call it, Oscars, when Olivia Coleman wins, the surprise win for Best Actress. Watching everyone's faces there is great because three of the four of them are shocked. Olivia Coleman is extra shocked, and Glenn Close <laughs> is pissed. Yeah. Glenn Close is visibly angry that she lost. That was the wife year, right? That was the fucking. What if there was a? Have you seen that movie? I have not seen the. Wife. It's a bad movie. You know what else is a bad movie? The recruit. The recruit. How was that? That was a good segue. <laughs> it was a good segue. Yeah. Let me before we move on. Before we move on to yes, yeah. was Colin your favorite of the nominees? Not of the year. Of the nominees, was he your favorite? No performance. No. Which one was your favorite? Austin Butler. Mm-hmm. But that might be because it's a different Colin Farrell movie that, that I is... would say is my favorite of the year, performance-wise. Oh, okay. That's the that's the like the tricky thing. So I was yeah. I was very much rooting for both of them because I do think Colin is wonderful in Banshees, and we'll get into it in a year. Um, my takeaway was of the five performances listed, Austin Butler, I think was the best. I don't know if you agree. Uh, I think that Austin Butler was unbelievable. It's an and insane I left that performance. Film, I left that film before entering all this. I had never thought about Austin Butler ever. He's somebody that my girlfriend knows because she follows He's pop culture pretty quick, like pretty bad. closely. He dated Vanessa Hudgens. He did Vanessa Hudgens. He's he was bad in, in that Diaries. Tarantino um, movie. Oh, Once Upon a Time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I went in having never really spent any thought on him at all. And I left thinking to myself, man, I hope I get to see Austin Butler and like, three Oh my God, he's going to have a great forward. career. Yeah. We're into it. I will say, I, I think uh, winning. I'm, I get clouded and I just like after sun. And I would have been happy with Paul Mescal winning. I think that was my favorite performance. Of sure. I have no, I have no objections to, to being pro. Paul Mescal and After Sun. Um, I it's wish just such a quiet, out. like beautiful, subtle a, film. It's just yeah. so delightful that it it broke into. And I know Best Actor was weak this year, and that fifth spot was like a lot of people could have had it. But I'm glad it ended up being him. But yeah, Butler could have won. Farrell could have won. I would have been happy with either of those, just because of that weird situation where Colin had so many movies and just. Banshees, as good as he is a Banshees, it's not my favorite performance he gave last year. And, I, and I'll repeat that. what I said last week, too. From where yeah. we are right now, this can change at any moment because Hollywood never plays out the way anybody expects it's going to. But all of those actors, except for Brendan Fraser, in my opinion, have legitimate expectations and shots to win an Academy Award years down the line. And well, I maybe not Bill not... Nye, just because he's so old. Yeah, maybe but... not Bill Nye, but... The other Bill Nye three... is also beloved in a way that, like, yes. if he has another starring role in a film like Living, he's probably going to get another shot. 
You know yeah. what I mean? I don't necessarily know if Frazier's ever going to get cast in the same manner. No, well, yeah. it's a, it's it's a hard it's a hard question to ask. I think I think Farrell Butler and Musco will all win an Oscar. At some I point. think it's you know it's hard the, to guarantee person, anything, but I have expectations yeah. that yeah. I have I have expectations that those three will have Academy Awards by the time we're twenty five years down the road. It's now. it's the same thing where I'm like in supporting. I think Barry T- Brian Tyree Henry and Barry Keehan are both better than Key Kwan. Hmm. But those two guys are probably going to win it. This is my thing. Is Carrie Condon ever going to get another spite at the apple? Yeah, that hurt me. And a that's lot. so undeniably the best performance of those five. Like it's it's not even a question for me. Stephanie Shu, very good. I honestly think Stephanie Shu is a better bite at the apple than Carrie Condon is. But it's it's Carrie Condon losing hurts because that's one of the best performances of the year. And I don't know if she's going to get back at it because shit sucks sometimes. Let me just leave off with one fuck you to the producers or the Academy, whoever is in charge of this for not including a Charles B. Dean in the. Oh, Charles uh, B. Dean getting morning. snubbed and Hayes yeah. getting snubbed, which feels like just because there was he, some drama around the death. Yeah. Albert Pune. I know he was never going to make it, but solidarity without Pune, that was the saddest one. But the Charlie Dean thing was just fucking rude. She's the lead of the, f- the film that was nominated for, nominated best, for picture. best picture. <laughs> yeah. We got to talk about the recruit. We're like 30 okay, minutes. Let's do it, man. Let's do it, man. Okay. Okay. The recruit 2003 directed by Ron- Roger Donaldson, also known for No Way Out 1987 starring Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman. Shaw Young and Will Patton are in that also. Um, he also... Directed Cocktail, which I'll just throw out there because we did Cruise. Did recently. you know that that Cocktail is about TJ Fridays? I did. Yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite. The, I've never seen the, Cocktail. <laughs> it's the original. Um, well, you know, TJ Fridays started as like the type of club. Yes, um, yes, it, where it is. the sweet smell uh, yes. of success would take place in. At yes, the time it, well, it was. It was like the first real what we know of as a cocktail bar now. Yeah. Um. And then it becomes a chain mid-level dining restaurant later after Cocktail is a movie. I just think that's funny. <laughs> they have one in, in London, I'm pretty sure, that's supposed to be a replica of the original. Oh, that might TGI be fun. Fridays. I don't want to go to a TGI Fridays. But... Well, if I'm in London, I don't I don't imagine I'm going to <laughs> TGI Fridays. But regardless, Dawson also, also directed Species, 1995, Dante's Peak, 13 Days um, preceding this. Uh, this is a film where Colin Farrell stars as James Clayton, a genius MIT computer programmer. Um, he is approached by a CIA recruiter named James Burke, who's played by Al Pacino, uh, who leads on that Clayton's father, who worked for Shell Oil Company, was possibly a CIA agent and killed because of his CIA affiliation. Clayton accepts the offer of interest and um, signs up for uh I don't know what it's called. <laughs> he he, he pledges. CIA training. <laughs> he pledges to the CIA just like you would a fraternity. Essentially, he gets through the front door. Um, he makes his way through m- the bulk of training at this place called the farm, where they send their new recruits. He gains an interest in a fellow trainee uh, named Layla, that's played by uh, what's her name, <laughs> Bridget Moynihan. Bridget Moynihan. <laughs> Sorry, uh, <laughs> we're doing doing real great right here. Um, 
at one point, uh, they're uh, feigning uh, torture techniques and Clayton breaks and he gets released from the program. But then it's revealed that he was actually chosen by Burke to be the knock, which is the non-official cover agent, someone who's not officially a part of the CIA, but works under CIA affiliation under like one handler. From what I can tell, it's never truly explained to that extent. He's told that Layla is actually a sleeper agent from Algeria or France or somewhere, some or some terrorist cell. And she's been sent there to steal a digital software weapon that can shut down any electronic anywhere. And Clayton begins a relationship with her undercover. And how far should I go with this? <laughs> I don't know where to go from here. I Turns mean, out that I Burke mean... is the bad guy. Burke is trying to steal the thing. Uh, Layla is a good person, I think. It ends with Burke dying in a shootout and Clayton's okay. And this movie makes no sense. And he ends up, makes no sense. he ends up becoming an official CIA agent. We think yeah, if it, yeah, I think that's the implication of the ending. The implication is that, that he's invited to become one. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I read that as like, he's going to be, cause they say they, they say it's in his blood, the whole daddy thing. Uh, gang, if if you heard Connor uh, completely peter out when he reached about the halfway point of that plot synopsis, uh, that is an accurate imitation of the making of this film. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about the making, but the watching of the film. No, I think this movie loses interest in itself, like at the exact halfway. Point. That's what I'm saying. Like I don't know yeah. when they were making it. If, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But th- th- this movie is, I think, very clearly bisected into two halves because it, it, it is literally almost at the halfway point i when, think well let me let me make this yeah. assumption it was pitched on a film it was pitched on the idea of uh writers who were saying we're taking a deep realistic look at cia training and what that does to people which bullshit but <laughs> i can't imagine i can imagine that that's what the pitch was and that is the first half of the film and then if they had someone, to weave in some yeah. kind of thriller, some kind of espionage thriller part. And that's the second half of the film. Yes. But the thriller, I, if you look at Minority Report, which we've watched, the kind of winding noirish tale of that pays off every single thing that is established earlier in the film. And I think that, at, like most Spielberg films, are, is a masterclass of kind of how to release information and how to pay it off later. And how to tie it all in into like an emotional through line from beginning to end. And this is, does this have an emotional through line? Cool. Do you think? No. I think <laughs> it, it, he wants to know this, if his dad was in the it's CIA. The dad th- okay. So <laughs> the, 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 the dad thing feels like one of the real motivating factors of the first half of the movie that this this kid Clayton, the Colin Farrell character, is is an orphan and has always suspected that something was up with his dad's mysterious death, and is kind of like poking at that bear as he's making his way through the CIA, and then it just gets completely abandoned in the second half, and there is no payoff to this idea. You never find anything out about his father beyond just generic confirmation that his dad was CIA, right? Which is like a tossed off bit at the very end of the movie, but neither is it like an interesting, like, well, 
I, I, I think the movie thinks it's going for this idea that if you're, if you're a, a deep cover espionage, espionage agent, which is, which is what being a knock refers to, like, just, just to clarify, this is a real thing. There are spies who have diplomatic credentials and there are spies who don't have diplomatic credentials, right? And the ones who don't have diplomatic credentials are the ones who are getting up to the nastier shit, but they're also de facto like unsupported, right? If, if they get caught, they, the, the government's not going to vouch for them. And I think that's can I make the, it a little, can I make it a little easier? Sure. This is the way I just think of it. Think yeah. of the regular agents. Think of Layla and Zach, who's played by Gabriel Mock, who are the regular CIA yes. agents in this film. They're like Jack Ryan. And sure. the knock is supposed to be like Jason Bourne. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a knock is also like a deep cover thing, right? Yeah. Like you've seen, I mean, when I think knock, and I'm kind of a spy movie head. Um, not kind of, I definitely am. When I think knock, I of course think of the greatest American movie ever made, Mission Impossible from 1996, <laughs> uh, which is about a knock list, right? Like the whole tension in Mission Impossible, the original, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is I that everyone's that trying list. to get their hands on a list of all the deep cover unofficial uh, spies that the government has infiltrating other places. Same like, general, we- Same general premise in Skyfall. Yeah, the same premise in Skyfall. When we think of spycraft, I think a lot of the time, especially in like the cinematic sense, we are thinking of Knox. Right? Yes, I think Whereas, most cinematic spies yes. are Knox. Whereas actual spycraft is a mix of that and to some degree, everyone working out of an embassy. Like, has some level of like they're enough they're official right they're like the cia has official stations they're still doing like skullduggery over there but they aren't deep cover can i say one can i say one good thing about this film there's which good i think things is plugging into this what movie you, there, there are is, good there things is. about this movie but one merit that i can give right off the bat is that from what i understand about the history of actual espionage and maybe not so much in the post cold war period but during the cold war is that a lot of these organizations whether it be the cia or mi6 for the united kingdom or um i don't know go across france germany whatever they have is that a lot of these organizations chase ghosts of their own making to kind of yes. legitimate to, to legitimize their own existence yes. as an intelligence organization. And I appreciate that this film plays into the same uh, wheelhouse of that, considering that there is no, there is no mysterious foreign actor. That's a part of this well, there that we is. meet. We don't know that we meet. There's, there's vague allusions at the end of the movie that the Pacino character is working for some rival power. But well, he that's has to have sold it, it yeah, to he has, somebody. He yeah. says they paid me. Like He makes it very clear that he is being <laughs> paid to smuggle out secrets. He's not going rogue in and of himself. But yeah. you're right to say that like beyond the acknowledgement that someone is working this op from a higher level outside the States there is no acknowledgement of a greater villain and this this chasing ghost thing again a better version of this movie the one that feels more fleshed out is the movie that's about that right that that really deals into this post cold war end of history sense of like the security apparatus needing to create its own villains which is 
already dated of an idea even when this movie comes out because it's a post 9-11 movie not only is this a post 9-11 movie but this is and this blew my mind this is a movie that makes jokes about 9-11 there's a gag at the beginning of the movie that the cia just sits around and doesn't do anything right that gets repeated at the end the the, the implication there is is bin laden that they let 9-11 happen right like what's the exact phrasing I can pull it up one second. I didn't, Colin, when when, I, when I'll take your I'll take your interpretation of this. I, yeah. It never occurred to me. Maybe I just wasn't. It's it. Another problem with this movie is it just doesn't really grip you. I think it's so... in a way where in a way where any of these bits of dialogue or bits of uh, narrative tension pay off in that kind of grander speaking intellectual manner. This movie, I, I don't think this movie is terrible for the first half. I don't no. think it's particularly great for the first half, but I think, okay, I found, I, found, I found the line. So when the recruitment, the titular recruitment is happening um, and Burke floats the idea of the CIA oh, to Clayton, Clayton yes, says, yes. all I know is there are a bunch of fat old white guys who fell asleep when the country needed them the most. Yes. That is maybe the first direct Hollywood acknowledgement of 9-11 and it's critical of the government, which is kind of a bold thing for a movie to be doing. And then Burke repeats that line back to him when he's trying to justify why he turned traitor. I actually, I, I won't necessarily say that that's a joke because I do joke. remember it's that. It's not a joke. I do remember that line. I do remember at that point it's in the beginning of the film, it. at that point in the beginning of the film, it does that that does read as a smart thing that the film is yeah. doing, you know, it's playing into uh, not even playing into it's, it's directly alluding to the kind of anger that a lot of Americans were feeling at the time. Um, sure. But I mean, I don't know how well you remember this, that even, even directly expressing that anger in like, so commercial a product as this it is still kind of a daring thing in January of 2003. It is, it is, but like, it's we never been, just, this is America, you know, there's always going to be not there's in, we were so gung ho in in those days. In those we were gung ho. We were gung ho in going to take them out. But we were also, I think, angry at the people who were so-called in charge that could have prevented this. These are not my opinions. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Right now, you know what I mean? But um, there's always going to be that kind of you're not on the side of the predominant politics. So anything that goes along, you goes wrong. You can easily blame towards that side of the predominant politics. And I think this film plays into that route. Yeah, possibly because it's not, the film is also oddly patriotic. Well, it's very, it's, it's patriotic yeah. in a way. All these movies are patriotic. Right. And I think that that jingoism, and I do think, I think you are understating the degree to which, that sort of jingoism was necessary. That's probably true. As a cultural thing. Like, Bourne yeah. can get away with it because Bourne is already in the can when 9-11 happens. Minority Report can get away with it because those are already in the can. This is not in the can. Um, and I think the fact that this movie, that, that, that thing you were saying about, like, wanting it to be more about spycraft creating its own enemies to create its own need for itself to exist, which is like a, a thing this movie seems like it sometimes gestures towards this movie's never going to delve in that in the immediate follow-up to 9-11 mm-hmm. 
Well, I guess what I'm saying is that you could, you could, you could go one or you, you could go one route or you could go down the other route. It's a fork in the road. Yeah. And this one if they're not going to go, if you're not going to go fully down the one route, I would have just rather had them swing in the other direction. Oh, I would have, have there be a terrorist organization that they're sure. actively investigating. Uh, many things could make this movie better. <laughs> yeah. We, one of go those to the writer's is... corner, Connor's writer's workshop again. I mean, this is the most fucking like patch job screenplay imaginable, right? It is. Like, so who wrote this? Like, I got this here. Robert Town, man. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> probably did is... not write it. He, he probably did punch up lines. It, when Robert Town, yeah. when Robert Town, obviously a great lineage behind that guy, when he is the first name credited on a screenplay, that is like the most hatchet job screenplay of all time. I don't think, I think if you go on his Wikipedia, I don't think this is even listed on his Wikipedia. Sure. Because he, he credit for. yeah. You know, he's the script doctor of all script doctors. That's what he he's, is, that's yeah. his bit. Um, and then he co wrote this with Kurt Wimmer, who had just written The Thomas Crown Affair um, and directed Equilibrium. Hell yeah. Yes. You seen equal, dude, have you seen Equilibrium? I have 100% seen Equilibrium. <laughs> that movie's so good. You're speaking to like a once upon a time world's greatest Christian Bale fan. Yeah. I know you've seen Equilibrium. Um, he also directed the new Children of the Corn remake. He's done so many remakes, which... Well, you know. do, do you know about his, his new version of Children of the Corn? No, I never, I never sought that out. They... Here's why. They shot that thing, like, right before COVID. Or they were shooting it when COVID hit, right? They shoot, they rap. It premieres in October of 2020. It came out two weeks ago. That's how long that are thing you, sat are on the Are you serious? Shelf. I am serious. That thing was in theaters <laughs> like last week. It comes out on Shutter. Shutter bought it. It comes out on Shutter on Tuesday. That's like wild. that thing sat on a shelf for three straight years. Um, and it's a franchise horror movie during the pan- height of the pandemic. That thing's got to stick. Um, That's got to be terrible. But the recruit. But he also did the Point Break remake. He did a remake, which we will not name. He did uh, I, Salt, you would Angelina have Jolie. Salt. He did a Law-Abiding. That famously fucked with. Law-Abiding Citizen, which thank God Colin Farrell is not in that movie. I've <laughs> never seen that movie. I like the idea of Jared, Gerard Butler having to hunt down Black Jigsaw, right? Like, that's yeah. kind of a cool idea. And then becoming Jigsaw and like, oh, is that what happened? The pro- it's it's essentially like you become the bad guy because you're hunting down the bad guys using the techniques of the okay. Guys. But you essentially, know, that movie's probably good. When I look at Kurt Wimmer's filmography, because again, it's it's Sphere, 1998, <laughs> the Thomas Crown a, Affair, a yeah, a huge hit. Equilibrium, Street the greatest Kings, movie ever made. Law Abiding Citizen, Salt, a film we will not name, Point Break. In Children of the Corn. This is like the ultimate filmmaker it, up until you hit uh, through Salt. This is the ultimate like 14 year old boy going yeah. to Blockbuster and taking the DVDs. Yeah. Home. The, the DVDs yeah. that he wants, not the DVDs for the family to watch on Friday night, the DVDs that he wants to watch after school on like a Thursday. Having to be the guy who writes the Point Break remake, though, that's just a shitty job, right? Like, I, 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 I have no ill. That's got to just suck. Especially because Fast and Furious is already a point break. It's already a, <laughs> and a perfect movie. 
And that uh and that is also written by Mitch Glazer, who yeah, a guy did work on Great Expectations, the Alfonso Cuaron yeah. film and uh Lost in Translation. Yeah, you know, he's been around for a long time. He was a big he was on SNL or wrote for SNL a little. Yes, he did, yeah. Um he wrote Scrooged famously. Um he produced Lost in Translation because he's he's close with Murray. Um, very, very close with Bill Murray. Uh yeah, weird that he hopped on this one, um, but you know, a, a job's a job. Uh, Great like Expectations said, has another interesting writer, right? Uh, I've never seen it. Wait, uh, let me. Oh, yeah, yeah, let, it does. Yeah. Uh, Who is it again? Well, is it David on. Mamet? Is it David Mamet? Uh, I, I want to double check this because <laughs> yes, I did just see that name. Mamet, Mamet did punch up on the script. Glazer. <laughs> Glazer wrote the script. Mamet, I guess. I guess there's a lot of voiceover in that movie. Like I've narration. never seen that because I've always I've heard it's it. like overwhelmingly mediocre. Yeah, like apparently, apparently there's a bunch of narration in that movie, and Mamet did the narration. Um, I also yeah. don't like Quaron. Sorry, I like Children of Men a lot. Um, it's fine. I hate Chivo, man. I, like I hate the Chivo of it all. Of oh oh, oh yeah, I hate I how that movie looks. Mean. I that's the one. So Children of Men works for me visually. Itu Mama Tambien. Itu Itu Mama Tambien rules. Uh, Azkaban's a lot of fun. I love Azkaban. I think Azkaban is my favorite Harry Potter film, which Insane. we will get into. Ridiculous. In the podcast. Ridiculous. Really, really, it's that much of a hot shot. What are you a Goblet of Fire guy? No. What do you What do you want? Half Blood Prince. Okay. Is a fair enough. Maybe. And I'm not being hyperbolic here because this is something I have thought about. I've said before, I, I truly think it was good. Half-Blood Prince is probably the single best looking blockbuster released in my lifetime. And I think it's a one of like probably the 10 best looking movies released in my lifetime. That's probably that movie is true. Bruno Del They go a little a overboard with the color. Correct. No, well, if, if you think they go overboard with the greens in that movie, you're not going to be on board with that. But if you're like I, me, you're I don't just think swooning in that movie. Let, here, let me let me rephrase. I, I don't. I, I think artistically it works. I think there's merit behind it. I think it hasn't aged well because, like every <sighs> other blockbuster that came out within three to five years after that one came out, all tried to replicate that kind of desaturated toning. That, that film does almost like what we talked about with the bleach bypass in the minor yeah. report episode how it just can takes I, over can i talk to you about bruno Delbanel for a second yeah go for it nobody talks about bruno Delbanel like they talk about deacons but they should because Delbanel has never won an oscar and pretty much every single time he's been nominated he handily should have won so his first nomination is for Amelie, which is not a movie I like, but looks beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. And he loses to Fellowship. Another movie that has that dominated the 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 look of that kind of film. That Amelie? Kind of whimsical, yeah. yeah. That kind of whimsical rom-com. Yeah. His all, next nomination for that. His next nomination, I have never seen a very long engagement, so I can't speak to that. His next nomination, we just said this, Half-Blood Prince loses to Avatar. 
Avatar looks like dog shit. I am <laughs> sorry. Uh, you want to watch a movie that looks good? Watch Avatar: The Way of Water. Him losing to Half Blood Prince to for Half Blood Prince to Avatar is a crime. Then he's up three years later with Inside Lou and Davis, another one of probably the five Great. best shot movies in my lifetime. Loses yeah. to Gravity. Chivo being a fucking See, menace. Gravity, I again. don't. Gravity's a Quran film that I don't really. It's like not good. Much. I, it was fine for what it was when I saw it in IMAX, but I'm never yeah. ever in my life going to turn that on just on the TV on HBO Max or whatever streaming service it might be housed on. Then he's nominated for Darkest Hour, a movie that people oh. don't like because I don't think they take it seriously. But that movie has like an almost Tarkovsky-esque painterly quality to yeah. like the diffusions of the light in those spaces. It, and that's a loses, great looking movie. That movie's beautiful. Loses to Blade Runner 2. But I, but I love Blade Runner ugh, so much. And <laughs> then, and so then, much. and then, speaking of Denis Villeneuve, last year Dune wins Best Cinematography, a movie that looks like mud. And Del Bonnell is up for Tragedy of Macbeth. You cannot tell me Dune is a better looking movie than Tragedy of Macbeth. No, I won't. Yeah, thank but you. But I see the merit in both. No. Bruno Del Bonnell deserves an Academy Award. What other nominees um, were there last year? Last year, Nightmare Alley looks like shit. Um, Power of the Dog. Nightmare Alley, man. Beautiful. Del to- I love Del Toro, and yeah. I love the original Nightmare Alley. And he just missed the mark with the new one. It's so interesting. I love the original Nightmare Alley. It's great. It's one of the it's, best it's, noirs ever. One of the best so films from that ugly. period. It's ever. so mean-spirited. Yeah. I have never read the novel that it's based on. I know Del Toro did that thing that everyone does where they say it's not a remake. It's a more faithful adaptation of the novel, Yeah, which is like a, a very stock line that I think a lot of times is bullshit. That being said, never read the novel, can't speak to it. But I will say the only real differences between the original Nightmare Alley and the remake are that the remake is an hour longer and insanely sexist. And you see the guy eat the chicken. And you see the guy eat the chicken, but like it's an hour longer and none of the women get anything to do in the remake. That's a it's a, it's a perfect example of you would somebody asks me if they should see Nightmare Alley and I say you should just watch the original. Yeah, there's no real point to watch the new one when you can watch the original. You know what else? There's no point to watching the recruits. <laughs> well, OK, well, what else was there? There was. Uh... Oh, and then I, I think oh, Power of the Dog. Beautiful. Yeah. And then I think West Side Story looks awful. That's I was yeah. I was talking in Minority Report about how Yanush normally drives me crazy, and everyone looking like a Barbie doll in West Side Story is like the most perfect example of what I don't like about Yanush Kaminsky. That's kind of another example, even where the one from is it nineteen sixty two sixty one sixty one. Bob Weiss does things visually that the Spielberg one doesn't even attempt to do. Yeah, no Spielberg. Maybe, maybe should not have ever directed a musical. He doesn't seem to have the juice. I'm sorry. I think he could have, but I would have liked him maybe to I, direct like a fantasy musical. Maybe Maybe the, the big problem with that movie, I think as a musical is I never once buy anyone breaking out into song or dance. Yeah. I, I, I'm aware it's a thing that needs to happen because it is West Side Story, but every single time it happens in that movie, I'm like, this is silly. 
And I love musicals. I don't think that about musicals. I need to stress this. They're like my favorite genre. We also and, just don't have, well, maybe there does exist, but whoever the modern equivalent of a Gene Kelly is does not get the opportunity well, to star in a musical in that manner. Well, I will tell you who the modern equivalent of a Gene Kelly is. <laughs> who? It's, Chan- I, it's Channing Tatum. Yes, yes. You are, and he's you are absolutely correct. Kind of doing sideways takes on that with the Magic Mike movies. You are correct. And I wish he would just get a real musical. I would love that. <laughs> uh, we don't yeah. know if he can sing. God, we don't want to talk about the recruit. Whatever, the problem like it, with the recruit, the problem <laughs> with the recruit is that the, I'm not, the first half isn't like great or anything, but it's like functional. And then once this turn happens and like a plot kicks in in the second half, my brain just turns to mush. It is so mind-numbingly dull, the like spycraft stuff that goes on and the weird love triangle that goes on. They just it, the, the movie doesn't seem to care. Whereas like the training camp stuff in the first half, I, you said it earlier, but you're right. That should be the whole movie. The movie should be like a, a boot camp movie, but for spies. Where you well, they pitch. Into... Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, the pitch was Top Gun, but with spies. A masterpiece. Pilots. The best movie ever made. Are you kidding me? If you made Top Gun, but with like annoying video game levels every five seconds, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm, I'm in love. My heart is beating out of my chest at that idea. And this movie kind of rushes through the good stuff so it can run through this like kind of lazy plot that is just there's just no juice to it whatsoever let me propose this one of the greatest aspects of good espionage films and good uh intelligence procedural procedural films is the inside baseball aspect of watching the operations go to work yes even if it's bullshit inside baseball the, the Every, feeling of inside yes, baseball. Yes, yes, yes. Even, yeah. you know, like, I, I love John Le Cray. Yes. I love his books. I love the films that are based off of his books. They're not always done to... I don't know if any had been done. Maybe The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Um, but other than that, I don't know if any of the adaptations from his books have really nailed it as hard as it can possibly be done yeah. on screen. But there's an aspect of his books where he... in in the time he was alive was very open about the fact where he would say like the intelligence agencies are not this smart that the people who are doing stuff in my books are doing things that the intelligence agencies are not capable of doing because they're not smart enough nor organized enough to put these plans into motion yet the thrilling aspect is just being thrown into machinations that are already in play and trying to figure out who is who is ordering what and what is motivating these actions that the characters are making. And, and think, in this film, I don't understand anything that's going on. Well, I'll, I'll make two points. And I also want to just build on that is like, even in like the other far end of the spectrum, which is like the James Bond mission impossible, like yeah. cartoon action movie. Those movies always peak when they do the like cutesy acknowledgement of real life, like spycraft stuff, right? Yes, yes. Like if whenever Ethan's doing a dead drop or Bond's like working an asset, like even those like cute acknowledgement of the, the inside baseball, like machinations of the whole thing, it, it highlights the, the cartoony nature of those things. And I think it the does. problem here is that the actual plot we have to work with is so bare bones, right? That 
And, okay, not only is it so bare bones, but it actually doesn't make sense because it's weirdly too complicated if you think about it. There's too many moving pieces. That's so what me, I'm saying. Let but me the pieces don't make any sense. Yeah, let me, you, let me you ask your questions, down. I ask my questions. We're not going to be able to figure it out. I've been thinking I about think, this movie for a full week, and I, I cannot think I can figure lay out this happening. out and then explain why it doesn't make sense. But let, let, let me get into the nitty gritty of it here. The idea, I think, is that Walter Burke has turned rogue and is trying to sell this extremely destructive computer program to the highest bidder. To do that, he needs to get the program out of Langley, right? The movie makes this point that like it is very difficult to get things inside and outside of Langley, but once you're in Langley, the security's not that great inside the building. Let me throw in it's, a wrinkle too yeah. that I had to I had to uh figure out for myself because we're so far removed from this that they make a point that the computers in Langley do not have CD drives. Yes. So they can only take out computer information on a thumb drive. And you have to remember that at the time, thumb drives could not carry like yes. <laughs> even close. It's, to it's a the super thumb drive. That doesn't bother yeah. me. That doesn't bother me. The no, it doesn't because don't... that's the realities of yeah. 2002 when this film was shot. Most the, likely the yeah. logistics don't bother me. This is what bothers me. As he said, inside Langley, according to this movie inside Langley, it's actually kind of easy to get up to some shit. What is hard is moving stuff outside Langley. So this is Burke's plan. As far as I can read it. He works Layla and gets Layla to turn. He basically like works Layla as an asset to get her to turn down being a field agent and instead be a cybersecurity person and feeds her some bullshit line about testing the capabilities and smuggling junk code out to test the internal security capabilities of the of Langley. Right. Can I ask you something right now? Yes. Is Burke Layla's handler? I or is the other guy so. Layla's handler? Does I Burke, think Burke so, is in charge. Why does she think it's junk code? <laughs> Burke, who is the recruit who is established at the beginning, he's introduced as being the CIA recruiter. Well, he's not the recruiter, and then he's the trainer. Later there, he's a, he's he's established in the he's yeah. introduced as being the recruiter. Mm -hmm. The and then transitions into being their trainer at the farm. And then is also uh what's his last name? Clayton's handler. Yes. But is also in charge of the placement of where all of the farm graduates end up and also their handler once they go I into the field. I think he's working, I think he's going off book and working these three people individually. And maybe having okay. This is question number one. Is Burke Layla's handler? If Burke's <laughs> not Layla's handler, everything actually makes a little more sense. Question but number if, two, does Burke place the graduates well, where this they is end my, up this is my the, point. <laughs> in the CIA? Burke, Burke says he's been working Layla and Clayton from the beginning. That yeah. he like has synced them up. And also Layla is under the impression that she's moving junk code. Which only makes sense if you think that Burke, the person who's going to be administering the test and then taking it off her hands when the test is over, that's what she thinks, would, would tell her it's junk code. So she'll hand it to him after she's successfully gotten that, right? That's the only reason I could think it'd be junk code. Point number two <laughs> is that Burke is independently without any sort of operation running Clayton as a knock, right? 
No but one not else, a real, but not a real, but one. not a real knock. Clay, he gets Clayton this low level data entry job and works him as a knock to get him to steal the code from Layla under the guise of protecting it from getting stolen. So if he's not her handler, that second layer of complication makes more sense. If he is her handler, it doesn't make any sense why he would want to do this. But again, if he's not her handler, nothing she's doing makes sense. Then on top of that, wait, let me throw, let me throw another thing in. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it, it, there's another trainee in the program along with Layla and Clayton. His name this is, is what I'm about to get to. He doesn't have a last name and it, it's revealed. I, these reveals, I don't know how much the weight the word reveal carries because yeah. I don't really know what ends up being true, what ends up, what ends up being fake. But it's revealed at the end of the film that Clayton wasn't the real knock and that Zach was the real knock. And that I... Clayton actually got bumped out of the program and that Zach is still in the CIA as a knock, according yeah. to Layla at the end of the film. Except if, if Zach's the real, quote unquote, real knock, yeah. Why is all Zach doing being the recipient of this quote unquote training mission to smuggle the stuff out? Well, right? I have a hundred questions about this because the, I've been thinking about it more I and more. I think I'm like, Burke is working Clay is working Zach too. And that this Zach is my also point, got kicked out. Is that <laughs> nothing? Yes. No, exactly. Nothing <laughs> anyone's doing individually makes sense unless you assume they're getting worked by Burke. Well, no, but, here, here, let me, I need getting, to tell you let something. Me finish, let me finish. Okay. Them getting worked by Burke means that Burke has added like eight different levels of complication <laughs> to guarantee this thing goes wrong. The only way it makes logical sense is if this is a movie that needs to have a twist every 15 minutes. Yes. yes which is clearly. what it is, but the, it's so sloppily put together. That this is why the second half of the movie turns my brain into mush. Because well, you, just, you don't give a shit. You you nailed it right there by saying that he makes it like threefold, if not exponentially, exponentially more complicated for him yeah. to pull off his thing. There's if so many this, points of failure. Let me say something right here. And this has nothing to do with the movie. This is just Burke's plan. Yeah. If it was so easy to, con- to emotionally condition Clayton into being solely loyal to Burke. Yes. Why not? Why not just recruit Clayton who's an MIT computer genius put him in the position that Layla is put into and just have Clayton take the <laughs> take the file out and give it to him yes! without having to track anybody yes! down second thought why if he's working this is why I don't think that he is Layla's handler because why won't he just have Layla give him the file that's what I'm that saying she's pulling out that's yeah. what I'm but this is what I'm saying is if he's not Layla's handler none of it makes sense third thing because yeah, it makes sense. It would make sense for Zach to be the knock because Zach on paper, once he has, quote unquote, graduated from the farm, which, again, is the place where the the officers are trained, which is supposedly in Virginia, but it looks it's, a lot like Canada. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, if Zach is the real knock, it makes sense that he would have seemingly no CIA affiliation and Layla would have to meet him in a crowded exterior place within the city, like a train station or. A but why or would like she be meeting with him anyway? But if you, but here's because if she needs to give him information and he's truly a knock, that means that she cannot use any. Why other means does of she communication. need to? You know, I get that. 
Why does she need to give him information? <laughs> forget forget why about that. Your, forget about why that. Why is your deep cover guy, if he's real, why is your deep cover guy involved in this training exercise in the first place? I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> but forget about that for a second. Because it, it like consider uh, if the information was that she let's say that the information was I know that such and such weapon is getting smuggled into Baltimore this weekend. And I know yes. that such and such CIA chief department chief is the one that is turned and he's the one bringing this in. Then it would make sense for her to meet with Zach who could do it off the books. Absolutely. That's not what's happening. Here. That's not I'm just what's saying, happening here. I'm just saying the way Zach is presented as being a knock makes sense yes. within the world that the film presents. Yes. But, but I'm you saying propose the if, placement of him in the narrative doesn't make sense oh let me just get this. clayton being a knock doesn't make any sense because he has fucking cia affiliation yes, they get him a you. job with the cia thank and you. the whole point of the knock is that the knock is not involved with any kind of covert covert operation nor the intelligence community in any way whatsoever the knock is supposed to be somebody that you like send to france under the guise that they're like a business consultant yes. and they're meeting with such and such firm that makes rice i don't know yeah not not somebody who is a low-level data entry analyst for the cia <laughs> that person can't be a knock this that is just also doesn't true. flat out doesn't work well that that makes a little more sense just because it's not real yes. he's getting he's getting worked by birth but he's a smart guy he, he's a computer genius at mit it's I, the fact that okay, he hasn't figured I have it out to, i have to say it i have to say it i have to say it i'm sorry i have to say it no one in the history of ever who has ever set foot on the MIT campus looks like Colin Farrell does in this movie. <laughs> I call bullshit that this guy is like a computer whiz. Is this the hottest Colin Farrell that we've uh, so far? Yeah, he's so far. beautiful yeah. in this movie. You know, when he's working at the bar and he has a shirt unbuttoned, he's got he has the that, shirt unbuttoned, like, that like leather necklace around. It's the perfect <laughs> yeah. level of stubble. His hair is really good. Especially after how bad the wig is in um, phone booth. <laughs> yeah. Um, what uh, do you think about Colin in this movie? I I think he's actually I I appreciate what he's doing because he's playing. I think why it's believable that he could get so wrapped around Burke's finger is because Colin plays him as such an anxiety ridden. Uh, yeah young man not necessarily an adult yet who's confused and trying to learn more about his father and just trying to do the right thing and the way he plays it it makes a lot of sense how that person could get manipulated so thoroughly um what do you think about colin in this movie i i don't know it's interesting this is this is like the third time almost in a row and literally if we're talking theatrical release dates in a row where my takeaway is like, well, Colin's playing this really small, you know? Yeah. I, I think a lot about the minority performance and I think a lot about the hearts war performance where I disagreed getting... with you guys on the minority. Report one. Yes, I, I really think that one works and you and Justin, I, don't, I think it works. I think it's small. It's just small. It's not a yeah. movie star performance. Yeah, and I think he's yeah. really good in Hearts War. We, we we said this, he's really good in Hearts War. Yeah. But it's very interesting that he's getting paired up with these three legends, and he is very, I think, clearly choosing to play more the straight man and give up shine to his co-stars in a lot of these scenes. And I yes. don't know if I think it works in this one. 
And I don't know if it's because Pacino is barely in this movie and, and it is, does need to be carried on Colin's shoulders so much, or if it is that Pacino is such a live wire that playing more of like a muted, muted character to bounce off him, you can kind of seem flat, but like, I don't know. Colin's really got to carry this movie more so than he does even hearts war. Um, this is nonsensical second building, by the way. He's so undeniably the lead of this movie. Um, but he just seems kind of bored through stretches of it. And I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad performance, but I, I am not saying that like performances need to be dynamic to be good, right? Like I think especially now, 2023, we've come off a year where Colin has given like several very, very extraordinary quiet internal performances which is something he can maybe do better as an older man. I think he does something similar to that, though, in uh, in Minority Report. But comparing this to Phone Booth last week, where that's such an exciting, dynamic, thrilling, edgier seat, like, I am carrying this fucking movie on my back, and I'm going to give you everything performance. I, I want more out of him in this movie than just hit your marks, say your lines, look pretty, have mastered the accent. I do think the accent's very good here. Let me tell you why I think Minority Report works in relation to this in Hearts War. I think when you have somebody like Spielberg and Farrell in the role that he is in, which is not the main protagonist, which he begins as what's seemingly the main antagonist and slowly shifts into a position where at a pivotal point in the film, he retains the role of main protagonist during the moment in the film where he is killed off. He like if you were to separate that scene as a short film out of the film itself, he is the main protagonist of that short. Yes. And I think that is why that performance is memorable to me, because he has that moment where his performance itself pays off and he gets to overstep what he has been doing up to that point within the function of the film itself. I think this is very comparable to Hearts War. I in the sense that the filmmaking doesn't support anything that Colin's really doing in terms of his acting process or whatever methodology he's applying towards this character that he's playing. Yes. Uh, Again, I think he's doing a lot of things with internalizing anxiety that Clayton will be feeling um, and maybe like a sense of being lost in the world that the filmmaking itself doesn't pay off in any way whatsoever. But I think I think that works better bouncing off what Willis is doing in Hearts War, which is so steadfast and radiant. I think Hearts War, despite Pacino, all its problems, is a marginally better movie than a this. Much better movie than this. <laughs> much better movie than this. Yeah. I don't think Hearts War is great. It's Heart War, yeah. Hearts no, War is, I don't think it's great. Hearts War is watchable though in in yes. a sense that this isn't. Yes. Yeah, and it's a very densely plotted movie in a way where I'm like, I'm I'm with you all it's the way. It's densely plotted in a way where the mechanics of the plot yeah. work. Yes. It's just the ramifications of the plot. Don't We've already, we went almost three hours in Hearts. Where again, this is a movie but, where the actual mechanics of the plot don't work. But he seems to be jiving <laughs> The gears aren't touching Willis. each yeah. other. The but, gears but, are just spinning. He seems to be in lockstep with Willis and Hearts 4 in a way where it feels like Pacino is like running circles around him well, in their scenes. And maybe it's also that he's like, when he's not paired up with Pacino, he's paired up with Bridget Moynihan, who's very boring, or Gabriel Mott, <laughs> who is like 
a, a complete nothing. And that's the another new, big problem. The new Cole movie, Hauser. The new Cole is that this Gabe mocked character needs to be giving the movie some more of an antagonistic edge. Did and you remember that nothing. he was in this? No. You've I seen this before, it. right? I had. Have you seen this before? I'd seen it many years ago, but I remember nothing about it. Like this, this I played on TV. Yeah. This and SWAT, which is funny that they came out in the same year, like months apart from each other. Were just SWAT's playing... 2004, isn't it? Am I no, wrong? SWAT is also 2003, I'm pretty sure. I'm Jesus. pretty sure this year it's uh, this Daredevil. Oh, Christ. SWAT Homebooth, is 2003. Yeah, you're SWAT, right. Veronica Guerin, and there may be another. Intermission. Intermission, yeah. They all came out in 2002. Yeah, they all came out in 2002. <laughs> well, well, Phone Booth kind of came out in 2002, but they all had their... We've, we've talked about it. They've heard yeah. us. Um, I I completely forgot that he was in this. Who, uh, Gabe Mocked? Yeah. I mean, I definitely I didn't know who about he was. Gabriel Mocked. He's not an interesting actor. <laughs> no, but I'm saying we I'm already sorry. talked about him. <laughs> I just said, I think he gives one, he's given one very good performance in his career later on. But you need, I mean, honestly, if they had just thrown Cole Hauser in for a third time, I would be like, yes, thank you. <laughs> because Cole Hauser would give you like bite. Right. You, you, you would remember here. Cole Hauser was in the movie. And this Zach character, like, is integral not only to the plot, but to the like interpersonal tensions of the movie. And he's you forget about him the second he's off screen. Can I can I go over the weird like parallel paths that Gabe mocked and Colin Farrell take? Please. Like they're in American Outlaws, both as brothers, yes, both as <laughs> members of the James family. Then Gabriel Mocked is in a Joel Schumacher film that got postponed due to a terrorist attack. Is he in he's Bad in, Company? He's in Bad Company, and okay. he plays a CIA agent. Then he's in this. He's a CIA agent. Then he's in the. Then he's in The Good Shepherd by Robert De Niro. He's in The Good Shepherd. Yes, he is Angelina Jolie's brother, and I cannot remember if he plays a CIA agent. But it is odd that he's in three movies where he's either a CIA agent or the movie is about the formation of the CIA. Then yeah. he's then he's in a superhero movie that was bef- predated the onslaught of the modern superhero movie, kind of like Feral, which is the spirit. Which is not really a superhero movie, but also no, but it's a that's the movie. good performance. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see what you're building towards. Yes, and then in 2011, <laughs> he's in a direct-to-video sequel <laughs> to SWAT, <laughs> and he's and he's the lead of it. He is so just odd parallel careers that these two men had. Yeah. <laughs> but then also he's on Suits. Um, yes, can and I he went say, to the and he went to the the royal wedding. This is. This is the the best thing I can say about Gabriel Mox, like who he is as a person. Uh, I Googled Gabriel Mox and you know how like it'll populate IMDb early and then it'll give you like photos from their IMDb page. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, If you just Google something, the first photo that comes up is definitely a picture of Giovanni Ribisi. Um, (laughs) Gabriel Mox is so anonymous. Google can't even pull photos of him properly. (laughs) Do you think they look alike? I don't think. No, they, they don't. <laughs> Rabisi <laughs> looks crazy. like Jeremy Strong. That's who Rabisi looks like. The mock, he like, does. there's just nothing they there. Moynihan, Bridget Moynihan's really not. Bridget Moynihan was like having a moment when this I know, movie what came a, out. What a, what a run for her, too, of that kind of movie that only 14 year old boys would rent. But she's not good in any of them. No. I've never seen Kylie Ugly. She's not good in. Uh, iRobot and like weirdly her big cultural legacy is going to end up being that she's John Wick's dead wife in the John Wick movies 
which is like I love those movies. The, the most thankless role anyone could ever have. I don't think this. I don't think this place to you i wasn't going to bring this up but i i actually think her cultural her place in cultural history is that she tom brady broke up with her and then she was the brady the tom brady thing sure sure yes that too not things you want to be remembered for and she's kind of like she has she has two scenes where she like needs to seduce colin first fake and then second for real and those two scenes work they do, yes. Both the seductions, I think, are very hot. The one, very the well one in the garage really works, and the, the one way in the garage just, is great. The way it immediately shame. cuts to them in the bedroom, but then they have no chemistry outside <laughs> of those two seduction scenes. Yeah. They're so bored with each other. I mean, the real—I think this movie's real selling point is Pacino, and I really like Pacino in this movie. I kind of hate Pacino, in this and movie. you said <laughs> you don't want to talk about it. So I want to know why you don't want to talk about it. Because he's Off so. Mic, you said that. Yeah. Well, no, no. I said I don't really want to talk about Pacino in general. Yeah. Well, we're gonna. We're. I mean, we. He, it's by far the the most important thing in this episode. And I have a um, game. Okay. You. I have gonna do Pac- your game right now. Do you want to do my game right now, and then we can talk about Pacino? We we might as well. Okay. Yeah. I have a game. I think this is actually a good time to do this game, and then we can get into the Pacino at all. I have here 17 quotes from Al Pacino movies. Oh, boy. Things that Al Pacino has said on screen. Damn. Do the movies, to, do, does it double up? Do the movies it, double no, up? No movies double up. Oh, God. And I have this, I think, scored from easiest to hardest. So I'm okay. going to read you a quote that Al Pacino has delivered in a movie. And Connor, I would like you to tell me what movie this comes from. I'll try. I'll try my hardest. Right. We're going to start easy. Also, okay. I am going to do cold reads. Um, <laughs> I don't want you to do You got to do the put, voice. I'm going to put nothing on it. All right. Are you ready? I guess I'm as ready as, as I'm ever going to be. So right, Number one. This is paradise. I'm telling you. This town like a great big pussy just waiting to get fucked. Come on. That's the that first. Scarface? That's the easiest one. That is, is Scarface. That yeah. All right, number two. I'm reloaded. Okay, come on in here, you motherfuckers. That's come Carlito's on, I'm way. wait. This is Carlito's way. <laughs> yeah, when he's in the bathroom. Such a good scene. Yeah. Number three. You know you can ball my wife if she wants you to. Oh man, you can lounge around here on your sofa <laughs> in her ex husband's dead tech postmodernistic bullshit house if you want to, but you do not get to watch my fucking television set. She's got a great ass. <laughs> You got your head all up in it. You've been so good. Yeah, that was he. You've been so good about not doing the impressions. Oh, man. <laughs> Number that's a, four. That's, that might be his best. That I think that might be his best quote from uh, Heat. I know. I didn't want to. Yeah. Oh, the one I read? Yeah, the one you read. I, I didn't want to give you great ass. It's I the knew. hardest one. It's the hardest one to do, though. Yeah. We got to do a Pacino Rushmore tonight, by the way. We're going to. Yeah. Um, Number four. You're going to see our brains on the sidewalk. They're going to spill our guts out. Are you going to show that on television? Have all your housewives look at that instead of as the world turns. Um, uh, uh, dog day afternoon. This is dog day afternoon. Yeah. All right. Number five. They're getting harder, but you're going to get this one. No, you fucked you. Don't invert stuff. Um, the insider. This is that. That's my favorite line in the insider. <laughs> yeah. 
This is my favorite line he's no, ever No, the delivered. best line in The Insider is anything that Christopher Plummer says in The Insider. Sure. That's his yeah. favorite. This is my favorite line he's ever delivered on screen. Number six, hips or lips? Oh, man. Hips or lips? Um, 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 um. What haven't we talked about? I mean, we've talked, we haven't talked about so many. Uh, yeah. Uh, hips. Is that cruising? That is cruising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number seven. Candy ass, no blocking bitches. <laughs> um, uh, boy. <laughs> this is a hard one. So I think this was an easy one. I, without the line readings, they're not sticking in my like they're they're not landing in my candy head. ass, no blocking bitches. Oh, oh, any given Sunday. Any given Sunday. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Number eight. I don't sleep. I piss like a racehorse every two hours. That's the that's the recruit. That's the recruit. Yeah. Number nine. You want to learn the first rule? You know it if you spent a day in your life. Don't ever open your mouth till you know what the shot is. You're a fucking child. They're getting harder. Um, don't open your mouth until you know what the shot is. You're. Oh, 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 oh uh, uh, um, 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 what's it called? Uh, son of a woman. No, that is Glenn Gary, no. Glenn Ross. Glenn Gary, ah, damn it! It's a uh, right. he's yelling at. That's his uh, big M speech to Glenn Gary, yeah. Glenn Ross. Son right. of a bitch! I'm going to jail. You understand? I'm going to prison because of you, you dumb motherfuckers. This That's... is what you wanted. You wanted to put me in jail. Tell me now, so I can kill you right here. <laughs> that scene almost won him an Oscar. It should have won him an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the Irishman. That's the Irishman. Yeah. All right, number eleven. <laughs> You're my, this actually might be. Wait, my can, I, can, I, can, I, can I talk about the last one? I love yeah. uh, So, what yeah. I love about you the Irish dumb is. Motherfuckers. I, what I, no, no, but what I loved about how they de aged is like, we're 20 years in the Irishman, we're 20 years on from he and the insider in any given Sunday where he really yeah. starts giving those big yeah. screary ones. So, he looks similar to like how he does in any given Sunday, minus like the slick that he has the slick back hair in the Irishman and in any given Sunday, he's got his crazy wig on. Um, but what I love is he's old man Pacino by this point. And he gets, he gets winded at like four different yeah, points in that so scene. Good. And he's like leaning over and you just see him like huffing and puffing for air. I mean, them all being so tired is why that movie is good. <laughs> yeah, it, I agree. I, that it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. Moment. Number 11. You're my job. You're what I'm paid to do. You're about as mysterious to me as a block toilet is to a fucking plumber. Reasons for doing what you did? Who gives a fuck? I love this line. I love um, this line so much. Insomnia. This is insomnia. Yeah. Is it when he's talking to the kid? The little... No, it's no, when he's, he's talking, talking to Robin Williams. Williams. Yeah. Robin Williams is doing his like, I'm the mystery you have to solve. Why would I do it? <laughs> and he's like, you're a fucking clogged toilet. It's a good movie. Right, number 12. I, I like the scene where he's interrogating the, the boyfriend, though. I love I love that scene. Too. And he pulls it. You know, he pulls the school desk towards him. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a show. It's a show. It's let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. Hey, Frank, you want to make a deal? Hey, uh, that's it. What? We already did. Wait, 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 wait. It's just a show. It's just a show. Can you read it again? Can you do the line? It's just a show. It's a show. It's let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. Hey, Frank, you want to make a deal? You don't know a deal. I'm being an asshole at this one. This is the second half of the quote. Oh, If I told you the first half of the quote, you might get it, which is, I'm out of order. You're out of whole order. This whole court's out of order. Oh, okay. This is the Uh, second half of that uh, quote. 
and from, justice for all and justice for all yeah i'm not gonna count that one i like that movie i love that movie uh number 13 you stupid fuck you didn't know me you fired without a warning without a fucking brain in your head oh shit if i buy one motherfucker i ain't buying it from you <laughs> part of why i love this is these these, these span yeah. like decades in his career and so many dynamic writers and yet they all sound exactly they all the sound same. exactly the same <laughs> and part of that was me choosing quotes that kind of hit that that rhythm of his read it one more time you stupid fuck you didn't know me you fired without a warning without a fucking brain in your head oh shit if i buy one motherfucker i ain't buying it from you mm, i'm not gonna get this one this is serpico Oh, I don't know if you say that in Serpico. Serpico. I have seen it. I don't even remember him saying it in Serpico. I just pulled it up. All right, number 14. I love these fucking pigeons. I die before I let anyone touch these pigeons. Uh, Panic in Needle Park. No, this is Donnie Brasco, which is the movie the recruit recruit wants to be. I I didn't rewatch Donnie Brasco. I haven't seen it in a very long time. Number 15. We're almost done. Yeah. You have just said goodbye to oxygen, you silly, stupid cop. You refused me. I offer you the keys to the kingdom, and you tell me you're an officer of the law. I am the law. Me. Give you a hint. No swearing. Read it one more time. You've just said goodbye to oxygen, you silly, stupid cop. You refuse me. I offer you the keys to a kingdom, and you tell me you're an officer of the law. I am the law. Me. Man, I'm going to, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to feel so stupid. Once it's Dick Tracy. It. Oh, I've never seen Dick Tracy. Okay. I don't feel this stupid. one. Number 16. Never seen this movie. Love this quote. Come the wet ass hour. I'm everybody's daddy. Oh my God. <laughs> is it Jack and Jill? No, that's sea of love. Sea of love. And number 17. The last one. Attica. Woo. Latte light. This whole trial is out of sight. That's, they pulled yeah. me back in with hazelnut to caramel squirrel. I knew it was you. <laughs> okay, now I'm what? Attica that's the quote. That's the quote. Attica hua latte light. This whole trial is out of sight. They pulled me back in with hazelnut to caramel swirl. I knew it was you. Is that Jack and Jill? I don't that know. is Jack and Jill. That, that is, is Jack just Jill? Jill. And if we could just take a brief moment of silence on the day we were recording this. Dunkin' Donuts has announced that they are discontinuing the Dunkachino. Are they heavy really? heart? They are. <laughs> anyway, that was the Dunkachino game. You got about half. You did fine. You got. I think yeah. I got a little more than half. I think one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, ten out of seventeen. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. That's not bad when it's like Jack and Jill, Dick Tracy. Yeah, exactly. I've seen these movies. Yeah. I gave you some hard ones. So you, why don't you like Al Pacino? What's the? You just heard the, all those beautiful lines. No, no, I love Al Pacino. I don't like him in this. I don't like him in the recruit. Oh, I was gonna say I don't know what the fuck A.O. Scott was smoking when he wrote his New York Times review, which is basically just like Al Pacino's so great. This is the greatest performance because, ever given in a genre okay, movie ever. Here's the thing. That's ridiculous. Is Al Pacino great in this movie? No. Is he the best part of this movie? Undeniably. I think he's just so in the pocket. He's so in the pocket. I want to read you a part from. uh, This is A.O. Scott's review says Mr. Pacino, on the other hand, the the other hand being um, Colin Farrell. 
is an exuberant riddle. Even though Burke's motives and emotions ultimately make no sense at all. Every time Burke opens his mouth, you wonder who on earth this guy is supposed to be. And your realization that the character, like the movie itself, is, is, is incoherently conceived hardly matters. <laughs> it is both appalling and amusing to contemplate the CIA as employing such a wingnut, especially as a teacher <laughs> of the young. But really what Mr. Pacino provides is an acting lesson, one that Mr. Farrell would do well to heed. In an unimaginative by the book movie like this one, the best thing an actor can do is dare to be strange. I mean, he is strange. I, I'm, I'm kind of on board with Tony Scott there. I gotta say. With Tony Scott. With his Tony name Scott. is Anthony. He goes by Tony in his personal life. Does he really? Yes, it's A.O. Oh, Scott that. because there's already a famous Tony Scott. That's oh, literally all it went, is. I wish it just was Tony Scott. It would be yeah, so fun to do that. Every time you read a review, you thought it was Tony Scott. But he's idiot. so on fire in every scene in this movie. I don't think he is, though, when you're comparing it again to like the insider he any given Sunday. No. This is a big step down. But I, I think this is kind of like, no, but this is the greatest hits of that, that post-Oscar run that you just mentioned, which is really... Carlito's Way, He, Donnie Brasco, Devil's Advocate, Insider, Gibbon Sunday, Insomnia, right? Which yes. I know we kind of make fun of like Hua era Pacino, Ooh-ah. but Hua. <laughs> but um, that's a great run. That's like almost a run that's as comparable as his like 70s golden age, right? I give you it's a line after, from this film. It's after this movie where things get bad. I love at the end in this one where he's like, You caught me. Hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> Hand in the cookie jar. Yeah. His pants are ruined. <laughs> yeah, it's, after... You know what movie immediately follows this? Geely. Yeah, Geely. Yeah. Then The Merchant of Venice. Venice, then Two for the Money. Two for the Money. This is when it gets minutes. bad. Like, it's the stuff after this bad. Is, is this performance as good as The Insider? No. No, it's not I'm close. not saying that. Yeah. But as a victory lap for that run, as like a coronation of that like real insane run he had gone on i'm fine with it and it's i i, I want to call it the end of one era rather than the start of the bad era i feel more that way about insomnia i feel sure. like insomnia he's is better he's, insomnia is the victory lap and this I mean, one is the like the insomnia is the in my opinion insomnia is the victory lap and this one is the one where the crazy wigs really start getting even crazier i love the wig i love the wig i love how much harry's under in this movie at the end of the movie i'm just looking at him look like a rag doll like screaming at them you i sell you out you sell me out like i don't even know what he's yelling at you are making the case for this performance being good i'm just telling you right now do you want to do the pacino rushmore yeah, I before think we I, talk about insomnia, I kind of wanted to do the Pacino rush for. I have to go first in this. No, one. I think I have to go first this time because you went first with Spielberg. I went first with Willis, then, then you went first in between the. Oh, you have to go first. We, we yeah, have Spielberg. Right. Okay, so yeah. just wanted to clear that out, but now I need to think for a second. The first one shouldn't be hard, man. In my no, opinion. it's not. And but you're yeah. you're not thinking what I'm thinking. I think I it's cru- it's cruising. F- oh, boy, okay. it's cruising. <laughs> See, this is the problem with Pacino is we're gonna end up leaving so much shit off Mount Rushmore. We can't but leave it off the table. I so, think if you're saying gun to your head, what's oh, the best you, Pacino uh, performance? Man, I think he froze. I'm still here. Can you see me? Okay, I need it. Do you give me um? Say cruising again. 
do 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 the beginning yeah. of it. Do number one over again. I the the problem with Pacino is that we're gonna end up leaving so much stuff on the floor. But if I'm being honest with myself and I'm saying what's my favorite Pacino performance, it's first spot on Mount Rushmore has to be cruising. Do you have a favorite line from from cruising? It, I but don't. that's first of all, yes, it's hips or lips. <laughs> and it was, in the, but this this is my point: is that cruising is the one where he stops being Al Pacino, right? And and so it's not about that like exciting live wire quotable energy that you're going to get for something else. Instead, it becomes this deeply muted interior like descent into the pure id of desire, and a lot of that is the movie surrounding him. But that is. It's such a hypnotic performance. It's such a beguiling performance. I think it's the most complex performance he's ever given when we're talking about like negotiations of desire. He looks incredible in it. There's the bit where he like somehow runs up the stairs like a gay man actually would, not like a person (laughs) pretending to be a gay man that me and my friends always like to send each other. It's just, he taps into something so raw and some of that is fear right fear of being a sexual object fear of wanting this desire received on him given to other people but it's it is the one i think and i know it's there's so much other stuff but i'd be lying if i said it wasn't cruising so cruising is number one you have two choices in a row I don't like taking the obvious, which but is why I liked, which is why I like that you went first with Bruce Willis. Yeah. Um, well, I took so, that bullet. You take this bullet. Yeah. I, it's going to be the Godfather part two, uh, which in my opinion is, if not the best in the top 10 best screen performances ever given. That's so interesting. That's what I would say about cruising. <laughs> truly. I, he's good at cruising truly, too. Truly. He's good at cruising this, too. I just, this is what I'm saying. Don't think I'm yeah. being silly when I put cruising there because I think cruising is that good. Like that's no, how good I, I think that performance is. I don't blame you. And I don't know if there's ever been an actor better than Pacino in the seventies. This is the other thing. Yeah. And so, I'm worried we're going to leave another seventies one off, but talk, talk to me about Godfather two. Godfather part two. I might be the greatest movie ever made. It might be the greatest screen performance ever made. It might be the best handful of screen performances ever given all in the same film. Um, all things I, I would agree a, if you were talking about the godfather but continue. i think it's no i i prefer yeah. the godfather part two the godfather i think it's impossible to appreciate the godfather part two for what it is unless you have seen the original sure. godfather i think the godfather part two i think where the godfather is also undeniably a great film but is a little too fetishistic about the life of gangsterdom i think in opposition or in juxtaposition, The Godfather Part Two is a elemental, fundamental text about the horrific underside of like that yearning for the American dream and what it forces people, not not even what it forces people to do, but what it legitimately forces people to become and how they change and morph over time through the constant pressures of whether it be American capitalism or our political system or any of these systems at play that keep people in their place and allow mobility when it does happen. I think 
in the same way that you have something like the great Gatsby that's looked at as the great American novel and you have citizen Kane that's looked at for similar reasons. I think the Godfather part two is a fundamental text in that sense. And I also think it's the beginning of modern cinema, at least modern American cinema. I think just the craft of the Godfather part two simply like marks an end point to everything that came before it. Yeah. Is that enough? I I, I have no (laughs) objections. You want anything else from me? No. And the, the thing about Pacino, good in it. the thing about Pacino is, yes, I think Pacino's good in it. And why, I think, tell me, tell me why, because we are talking performances, not movies. Tell me why two over one. Why two? What over I would one. ask for strictly, strictly, if we're talking about the work Al is doing in those two movies. Not saying you have to change your mind. I'll tell you right now, when you get to the end of The Godfather Part 2 and they do the flashback from the era right before Michael goes off to World War II. in the movie. And you see the transformation because Michael does have an arc throughout The Godfather Part 2. But at the beginning of The Godfather Part 2, he's undeniably different than he is at the beginning of Godfather Part 1, even the end of Godfather Part 1. To see him go back into that version of Michael that we've never even really seen that existed before the beginning of Godfather part one existed before he became a war hero, before he even went off to war. And to see that Pacino was able to embody both of those versions of the same character. And aside from that, which I agree with you, I think, I think that flashback scene, I'm not necessarily sure if it's the best scene in the movie, but I think it's the most, I think it is the, most affecting flashback maybe in any film ever. Can I say, as as someone, I I, I, I quite like Godfather Part Two. I'm not objecting to your pick because it's your pick. Yeah. I, I will just say, as someone who is a bit of a Godfather Two skeptic, I think that scene is really the only scene in The Godfather Part Two that is not outdone by the last scene of the Godfather. And that is my thing about the Godfather part two. Is the I last think scene as in the last scene as in when Michael shutting the door. the door. Yes. Yeah. That's the, that's the one time I think that movie brings something new to the table. No, I not think... done. And I know I'm a little, I'm kind of alone on that. You're not, you're not there. It's a, it's, it's not a cut and dry case. I mean, no. there's, you know, there's a camp of people that think, the first movie's better is can't people think the second movie's better. I'm solidly a first movie's better. I'll say iconography-wise, yeah. The image that sticks out the most in my head that is the most telling of what the Godfather franchise has to say about who we are as Americans and who we are as immigrants and who we are as people that are trying to get ahead in life. It's the shot of Fredo on the boat praying with the gun stretching out behind him. Sure. And I think the dynamic between Michael and Fredo in the second movie to me is a lot more affecting and a lot stronger than the dynamic between Michael and the rival families in the first movie. And to add, I just think Pacino's more contemplative process towards Michael in the second movie. Uh, is more it, it has aged better than what he did in the first movie but it's like i hate you that you're making me no say not why, making one, you do why one godfather is better than the other i'm just I, I i just i just wanted to hear the reasoning all right what's your number three 
But Michael sitting on the bench at the end of the second movie—it's good. It's very incredible. Yeah. The, the Godfather Two is not a bad movie by any <laughs> means. Do not get me wrong, listeners. I just also, also, also. Let me, let me, let me just yeah. say real quick. A lot of the scenes in the Godfather Part Two are just absolutely thrilling because it's Michael trying to put the puzzle piece together of sure. what's going on behind the scenes. Sure. And if, you, if you're caught in that, no, no objections to this whatsoever. I love what's that. Your number, what's, what's your number? What's your what's your what's your third spot? Uh. We are leaving so much on the table. We are. And I hate to go with another film from this era, but I'm going Serpico. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Talk to me about Serpico. I think Serpico might be his most uh, varied performance in a film. How do you feel about that? It's been way too long since I've seen Serpico is, is my only objection to like not even objection. My only reason why I can't really weigh on on it. I remember being a very thrilling performance, and I think it's kind of the birth of Livewire Pacino. Have not seen Panic in Needle Park. Can't speak to Panic in Needle Park. He's obviously doing something different in the Godfather movies, though. Yes, I think, I think the Serpico works in, is... uh, the reason that Serpico is my second pick, really, because I don't I have cruising behind both of them, is because. Pacino is playing a man who never intended to be caught in this whirlwind of threatening danger. And he's playing a guy that is just at the extremities of the capacity that he has left to overcome these struggles that he's been put up against. And it, it plays out so differently than it does in something like the Godfather where the Michael and the Godfather is highly intelligent, highly, uh, able to manipulate the situation that he's in and Serpico has zero interest in doing that. And Serpico just wants to be good at his job and just wants to have fulfilling relationships in his wife and in his life. I mean, and it's these, again, these systems that he's been thrust into unknowingly, unknowingly has placed him in a position where he is not getting anything out of his situation personally or professionally that he would like to have. And I think his performance in Serpico is more reflective of the average person's experience and feeling overwhelmed by their situation. And again, it's, it's a situation where it's a fairly normal person who has decided to become a police officer is put up against insurmountable odds. I I mean, it's a, it's a great performance. It's just been like 10 years since I last saw that movie. I, it's just not fresh in my mind. Also Sidney Lumet is, was one of the greatest directors of actors. I'm <laughs> well, do you do you disagree with me that he was one no, of the greatest directors and actors that we've and ever had? Fact, so, yeah, I know what I'm about to do is boring. I know it's boring, but this is canonical, right? Yeah, and we gotta we gotta stick to that. And as much as I do wish we had a, a, a Hua era performance on here, because they are in fact so good, and part of the reason why I jumped into this early i think cut off the pacino conversation was because we're starting to talk about insomnia and there was a non-zero chance that i would have put insomnia on here <laughs> but i'm not putting insomnia on here and it's i know it's boring but it's dog day. it's dog day fourth spot is dog day i mean another just absolutely it's just an, another movie that i probably put yeah. in the top 10 performances of all time anyone's ever gonna but here's the thing about the performance in dog day after day that i think the other three performances don't have and i guess it's two things the first thing is that it's incredibly funny 
Like Al Pacino is not often a comedic performer. Sometimes he's a wacky performer, but he's not often a comedic performer. But that movie's a comedy. It's a bleak comedy, but it's paced and structured like a comedy, like a farce. And him just getting to do all this back and forth banter and sight gags and playing off Kazali, it, 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 it is a side of him that you so rarely see of this great comedic performer. But the real reason I think I have to go with Dog Day which I mind-blowing performance. It's what I said about Colin Farrell last week in Phone Booth. The, the movie Phone Booth works because the performance works, right? It's, it's funny the, that, that you're comparing all, the two because, well, because, they're, because I think they're phone, booth phone Booth is in uh, conversation with it. It owes so much. To it does owe it. But yeah. the thing I think it most owes is that, you know, Colin is that movie, right? Yeah. The movie's not... If the movie works, it's because the performance is working. Dog Day Afternoon is one of the best movies ever made. No disrespect to anyone else who's in Dog Day Afternoon because it's all giving great performances. But that thing is Al, right? Like, cruising isn't Al, right? Not entirely. Cruising is so much the photography and the, the sets and the extras. Godfather 2, there's a whole fucking subplot with Robert De Niro they never meet. That movie's not Al. Serpico's the script, right? Like, like, yeah, like none, but Dog Day Afternoon is on, is fucking Al Pacino was Atlas carrying that movie on his shoulders. And that's one of the best movies ever made, I think, truly. And it's because that performance is so, it's the most honest performance I think he's ever given. The most real person he's ever been on screen. And I know it sucks that all four of our movies are from like, what, a seven-year window? But it's but just I a testament to who Al Pacino was. How good time. it was. And again, I mean, I thank God you didn't say Heat because I don't think that deserves to be up there. Carlito could have been up there. Insider could have been up there. Insomnia could have been Let's up there. Let's get to all that in a minute. Yeah. But, but just to restate the canonical four best Mount Rushmore Al Pacino performances are Cruising, The Godfather Part 2, Serpico, and Dog Day Afternoon. You heard it here first. I think it's a pretty definitive. I think it's kind of undeniable. Yeah. I think, let me say one more thing about The Godfather Part 2. Just because you, go you, you brought it up. Me. De Niro also gives a performance that would have kind of broken the history of on-screen acting in half. And I think Pacino is better in the film, sure. which is just an unbelievable thing to say when you watch that De Niro. If you were to watch that that De Niro section as its own movie and compare it to what Pacino does in his own movie within The Godfather Part Two, Pacino's is more thrilling and more captivating um, despite De-, De Niro giving one of the greatest performances sure. ever. Uh, yeah, yeah. I-, I have no objections. I did not veto it. I, I stand by it. It's right. <laughs> Um, let's, okay. So that's our, that's our Mount Rushmore. That's our Mount Rushmore. We are not going to do this with other actors. Maybe every once in a while we'll do it. What is your favorite, uh, old man, big guy yelling, (laughs) Uwa Pacino era? It's, it's a performance or line? Uh, performance. It's the insider. I was going to, yeah. It's the insider. Yeah. This is what I would say. And, and, and well, the other, other thing I would say, he's better than heat. He's a lot better than heat. That's why I was saying, don't, I was praying because I know you love heat. I was just praying that you wouldn't pick heat just because there are better versions of the heat performance. If we are talking the booming loudness, it is the insider. Um, If we are talking generic, the old Pacino post, post highest Pacino, I do think it's insomnia because again, it's such a swerve. He's not doing the thing. Yeah. And I find that so sad. But the insider, I don't even like the insider like that much, if I'm being honest. 
I like that performance so fucking much. I like that. I like that movie a lot. It's low on my man rankings. I, what I find funny about that movie is that it takes the 60 minutes piece so seriously. And then nobody cared. Everybody (laughs) smoked cigarettes. (laughs) Nobody stopped smoking cigarettes. It's always fun to see a contemporary biopic. You know, that movie's like three, four years earlier. The other thing thing that's hilarious about that movie is that Russell Crowe and Al Pacino are playing the same age. In yeah. The movie. yeah i this is my thing about them. i think crow's bad in the, that movie i i would kind of gesture around the same route yeah. i don't An i don't know if he's I'm bad. very uneven on but i think he's bad on that one i, His I don't accent is such a disaster yeah but he's playing such a weird guy that it kind of i want to i want to put out my grand accent theory here for a second because yeah. i feel like I feel like having listening back to the episodes, I kind of feel like I'm coming across as getting hung up on the technical aspects of the accents. And that's not for me the issue. The accent in the insider is bad. But the problem with the accent in the insider being bad is that Russell Crowe is struggling so much with the accent that the performance isn't there. Like he's uncomfortable with saying the lines and therefore he can't be good. That's my problem with bad accents is that they take energy away. And that's why I think I'm giving more of a pass to some of the Colin accents than you have been, Connor, just because I would rather him be comfortable. I don't think I've, yeah. I don't, I don't think, I think I've given more of a pass than maybe, you. Maybe, maybe. I'm is thinking the one about that really like phone booth. Yeah. Phone booth. I'm like, I'm fine because he's in the character. I agree. I think yeah. the performance is amazing. I think it's just the fact that that is a particular accent that I hear almost literally every single day that really hangs but me up. When, when an accent is bad, often yeah. the actor is trying to make the accent work and that hurts the performance. That's why that's my issue with accents, not the technical precision of it. It's really Why don't you clear the air? It's really strange that the like <laughs> the, the the timeline of his accents going from Hearts War to Minority Report to Phone Booth, which is so different, but still Amer- still attempting to be American, to this. It's a very, very strange Yeah, uh, I like the accent here. I think he's very comfortable. I think he's very comfortable in this movie. The, it just he also a plays a guy who books. spent a lot of his youth outside yeah. of America. Well, saying the, like, I'm from all over thing, yeah. it's smart. It's so smart. Um, do you want like, to did you go? About- did you grow up or go to college with a lot of people who went to like international high schools in different countries? No, but my best friend is an American, but he spent most of his childhood in Africa and Asia. Um, so kind of, I guess. I'm gonna have to start thinking about how he talks. I there were a couple people that moved to my high school from yeah. abroad that went to international high schools before they came to America. And there were a few people that I was really close with in college and they, they all have their ways of speaking are very interesting. Um, I have a couple friends in, in particular who are native Spanish speakers, but when they speak English, it almost sounds like they're speaking English with a European accent because they knew yeah. like, German exchange students in the high school that they went to. Um, and obviously in those high schools, they speak English. So if someone's speaking English with a German accent and then you have a non-English speaker attempting to learn how to speak English around somebody with that kind of accent, they almost graft it onto their own. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think his I think it works in this one. And I, I think he were also works in that essence yeah. that he's playing somebody that's a nomad that really has no place in the sure. world. Yeah. I, I, I kind of just want to see more. And I think it's the Pacino thing. It's just making him look worse. Because uh, he certainly... And, and the fact that he has to play off Bridget Moynihan and Gabe Mott when he's not playing off Pacino. He's kind of set adrift in this movie. Hand caught in the cookie jar. So a couple more things I just wanted to say. Just some brief thoughts I want to throw out to you. Uh, insane that he calls Gabriel Mock Sonny Crockett in this movie. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> my, 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 the alarm bells went off, which is just such an interesting, like, because Agent Zach is from Miami, he's a Miami he's police Miami, officer. But I guess just this, this sense of like, what's the Colin Farrell role? And it's like, no, they're trying to make him be a little bit more of a dirtbag and a bad boy as opposed to like. Yeah. This very pretty 80s cop, but they don't know what's coming in the future. I, yeah, it is um, funny. He also delivers the Bond, James Bond, at yeah. one point. Um, did you think about Men in Black watching this movie? Because I couldn't shake it in like the first 30 minutes um, before I they go it, to the farm. Now that you say it, I definitely understand. When, the because it's, the, it's a similar dynamic of. Um, of like he's going before he gets to the farm and starts training when he's just like go going through security screenings and like trying to like pass the aptitude test and everything there's very much the similar sense of like well pacino's handpicked this guy so he has to go through emotions but everyone knows who's actually coming out the other end and you're watching it and you're like you wish there was more of a pacino feral like relationship in this movie it's like another strange it's another strange plot scenario because there are all these training activities that are essentially designed just to test feral and yeah, none of the which other is, which is what happens in men in black yes right yeah. like that's the thing like my my read on men in black has always been that like when he's put in that room with all those like square jawed perfect candidates like they aren't actually ever considering those guys it's just a test of him to see how he plays off of them I think what's compelling is that in the beginning, Pacino or Burke, whatever his character's name is, makes it he he intimates that there are too many gung ho people applying Mm -hmm. to work for the CIA. And that is the reason why he is out recruiting. And that is the reason why specifically he is out recruiting, quote unquote, possibly the son of a comrade that he had served with in the yeah. early ni- like 80s through the early 90s um, or until 1990. And. Uh, but then. What happens is Farrell gets through the initial screening and he goes to talk to Burke and Burke is like, let me stop you from making a mistake. I am not your friend. I was only being congenial to you as I was trying to recruit you for those purposes in general. Now you are just one of the other multitude of recruits who are here. But then the entire recruitment, I'm saying for everybody seemingly, the way it's, the way it's, uh, the way <laughs> the way it's depicted to the viewer is that the entire CIA training apparatus at the farm is just designed to test Farrell yes. and nobody else. <laughs> Which is why, like, if that's the case and if this whole thing is going to be like, well, Burke's been grooming him from the start, then give me more Farrell. Like, give me an actual yeah. relationship there. Maybe I'd like the Farrell performance more. But why are any of the other recruits being like, why is I, this all for this guy? I don't. It doesn't it get bad script, bad, yeah. messy script, lazy kind of Susie movie. But let, let me get, let me give you an example of yeah. like 
the inside baseball of the spy mechanics that doesn't really work at all. There's a scene where they are practicing trailing a target, I believe, and they're going over the terminology, the rabbit. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember what the other um, one is called. I don't but remember, but they have terminology and they're going over it. And then it becomes very clear that this is either not well thought through by the screenwriters or not well thought through by the director because it just cuts to Farrell and Bridget Moynihan who have been paired up walking down a busy like main street area, seemingly in Virginia, wherever the farm actually is. And they're having a conversation about uh, some other thing that they had just experienced. And then Bridget Moynihan goes, Oh, this looks like a ideal lookout spot right here. And there's no, there's no information given as to what the what their goals during this training exercise actually is and that happens over and over and over again throughout this yeah it's kind of just mess one other thing i wanted to note just as an example of how like mind-numbing the second half of this movie is uh which i had to write this down just because it's so fucking funny there's a bit where like colin has broken into bridget moynihan's office and is like trying to download the code before she can get in there and catch him. And it's supposed to be this like ticking clock thing, like cutting back and forth. Will he catch in? I'm thinking a lot of the scene, the first mission Impossible, where like Tom's hacking in the space. Right. And this guy keeps walking forward. But for yeah. some reason, the cutaways to Bridget Moynihan are just slow motion shots of her ordering coffee paying for coffee picking up her coffee and then and this is the moment i was like all right fuck this movie there is a close-up slow motion shot in what is supposed to be a tense sequence of her pouring the coffee from a plastic mug to a travel mug do you know what i'm talking about i know exactly what you're talking about (laughs) and it's like this is supposed to be thrilling but there's no there there with this movie it's just Pouring coffee from one mug to another till we get to the next plot beat. Well, one movie is directed by Brian De Palma. Yeah, but Donaldson and made the bank job. I know. And again, I no way out. No way out is incredible. And yeah, and I'll one watch of the it. greatest espionage films. Ever I'll made. watch it. I'll watch it. Do you have anything less left you want to say about this movie? Let me check. I I took some notes, but yeah, just if you want to. Again, it's a, it's a it's it's just a hard movie to talk about. Um, we're just, really in the this so this movie released wide before yeah. Phone Booth did, because um, yes. this released at the end of January. January, and it does fairly well. Yeah, makes it a made hundo. um it made fifty five point two million domestically, but it doubles that internationally. Uh, Which is yeah, a, so, you know, a good return for a January movie. Two had stars? a 40, 46 million dollar budget and it made uh, 101.2 yeah. million um so it made 55 i mean i, I mean if, profit it made 55 if we're talking about this like gatling gun of colin farrell releases is just as like the real like in the trenches energy of having to be a movie star this and is just the beginning making these things work it it works like no one super likes it i don't think it has a legacy but it it does what it needs to do so not talking about the movie anymore, the yeah. text of the film. This yeah, yeah. is this is the beginning of the Colin Farrell is the <laughs> biggest the, movie star. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like he shows up to the red. He shows up to the premiere with Britney Spears. Yes, um, as his date. Uh, Iconic. If 
listeners, if you have an image in your head of like the Britney Spears, Colin Farrell relationship, like if you know those photos that I'm talking about where they have like, he has his arm around her neck and they're like sticking their tongues out and making out and making goofy faces. Like, I feel like everyone knows those photos. Those photos are from the recruit red carpet. Yeah. Like, and <laughs> this is almost I was watching Colin uh, Farrell tabloid energy. I was watching an interview of Bridget Moynihan by Conan O'Brien for the press run of this film. And Bridget Moynihan just drags Britney Spears for seemingly no blow reason. Blow up her spot, dude. <laughs> And she starts talking about how Britney Spears was only there for the photo op and didn't stay to watch the film. Like she basically just walked down the red carpet with Colin Farrell and then left. And then they start randomly they talking about how that. tiny of a person she is. It's really weird. It's they very spend, like, weird. They spend like two minutes talking about how tiny I mean, Britney Spears is. People hated Britney. Yeah. Sorry. They hated Britney. It's always um, good content to drag Britney. Colin is on the cover of Details Magazine. The, the subtitle said, have you had sex with Colin Farrell yet? <laughs> is the, I mean, the headline. We, we kind of got into this last week, but he is, I think, to some degree, more famous for being a famous than he is for being a movie star. At I this think point. at this point in time, yes. But yeah. also, and especially as we crest until Alexander, it, the movies aren't flopping right like he's getting the job done commercially it is just that he is such a tabloid fixation that's always going to overshadow the the movies in question yeah Yeah. he says um there's i mean there's so many interviews with him from this press run because again he's becoming one of the bigger celebrities at play is this when he says heroin is fine in moderation i can't so i could not figure out when he actually said that but they ask he there's a crazy profile of him that was published in the independent um, yeah, in March of 2003. And they bring that up in the profile that they, I guess his brother was there with him during the interview and the reporter, um, Leslie Felperin. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name correctly. Uh, assume that the brother was there to kind of nod like, yes, you should answer this question or no, you shouldn't answer this question <laughs> because by this point in time, Colin has a bit of a um, a bit of a reputation on these tours and during interviews of just saying whatever he, comes to mind. He just fucking goes for it and God bless yeah. him. So at one point he did say before this, he said that heroin was okay in moderation. I think he was being interviewed by Playboy magazine um okay yeah that's just a quote i know kind of unsettling uh, in retrospect yeah it's a very strange um profile this one that i'm referencing here and this reporter kind of drags him through the mud a little bit so here's some things here's some sections from this profile that were published says The profile begins by saying Colin Farrell is a little tired today. The stubble has rebelled and declared itself at an early stage beard. The strong, thick eyebrows are starting to reach out to one another for support, giving him a slight scowl. He's been out on a five week bender back in Dublin, his hometown, where both his latest film, The Recruit, and his next phone booth are were showing at the Dublin Film Festival. But there's something more than tiredness about him, something in his eyes put you in mind of a man who's just crossed a bridge over a ravine and seen the ropes and the boards collapse behind him. And then they go on a few paragraphs later to say, maybe he's just arrived at the stage, the one after you've been on the cover of Vanity Fair. 
but before you start taking swipes at photographers where the whole circus isn't an amusing novelty anymore. Ferrell is already legendary for his pugnacious frankness about his exploits, happy to talk about past drug taking and brawls and the varying shapes of pubic hair around the world. I don't know where these interviews are coming from. I'm assuming in Playboy. But regardless, um, this reporter says, does he regret some of the things he said now? No, he insists. A couple of times I've read things and maybe for 30 seconds I get a panic attack and think, oh, my God, did I say that? And then I say, yeah, I did. Whatever. Josh, my agent, who was a fucking bitch at the best of times, (laughs) once wrote me a nice little note saying a few industry insiders have commented on this, a particularly scandalous interview already. If this is how you want to be perceived in the industry, so be it. I told him to fuck off. (laughs) I mean, <laughs> it's probably why he flamed out, right? I can to, imagine. To some degree, he does not seem to like the media circus. Reading interviews with him from the air and watching him on like talk shows and stuff. Uh, the drugs are obviously a part of it, but yeah. 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 That's the recruit, I guess. He's really excited about working in a Michael Cunningham's A Home at the End of the World. Well, that's um, an like adaptation a of A Home serious, at the End of the World. Yeah, a serious movie, yeah. you know? He's so, really he's so interested. Yeah. He's so interested in this uh, profile on working on that. He says um, his best friend is gay. He's not, but they're young. And they mess around with each other. His yeah. family have all passed away, so he's had a lot of loss in life, but he's not really that damaged by it. In The Recruit, I played a character who's lost both his parents at 14, and it's like an internal scar he wears every day of his life. But this character is the complete opposite. He's really open and full of love. It's beautifully written character. It's a beautifully written character. So I'm a lucky little bastard getting a chance to do it. <laughs> I just love it when he says stuff like that. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, if I were if I were getting this, I would want to do something. A little with a little more depth too, you know. It's just yeah. fascinating how open he is of a as a movie star. I yeah, but I think that's also part of the unwillingness to play the game, right? Is almost a rejection. Yeah. And I know to some people that can be the the media training, right? Is is being so so you know guileless in a way, not guileless, open. Um Wait, there's another interview that he had with IGN, and this pertains directly to the towards the recruit that I found interesting. He's talking about Clayton, the character that he plays. And he mentions that Clayton's father died in a plane crash and his mother died from natural causes, which is never mentioned in the film. I don't never think mentioned in the died. film. I see saw uh, that too. Yeah, when he was 14. And then uh Farrell says he pretends he doesn't take things too seriously, but in fact he takes everything very seriously. I was attracted to how damaged he was and how at the age of 25 he wasn't a man. He hadn't found himself. He has no reference because he can't remember his parents. I was I was wondering if he felt like he wasn't a man yet at that age. Maybe. I don't yeah. know. I would like to see that character in the movie. Again, I think you pick I, it up. I think like that's a directing issue. Because the filmmaking doesn't give any yeah, doesn't could have any room for that to breathe anything else you want to no I'm, I'm 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 recruited mentioned. out <laughs> like i said this movie makes my brain hurt to think about um do you have a game yeah um we're gonna go with kind of a game that we've been playing recently where i find some kind of publicated list yes, of the best of and we're just gonna go spy movies from indie wire Indie there are Wire's 15 i don't know if you want to do all 15 Ugh. i don't know if you want to start with uh, to, uh when was this was published five. this was published in 2022 
Okay, so recent. So Tinker which is, Taylor's, which is the reason why I picked it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is. I should have written these down ahead of time. I hate. I don't know if you've ever looked at IndieWire lists. Uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy's Spy is number five on the list. Okay, this is yeah. an IndieWire list, so I'm gonna guess Mission Impossible Fallout. Give me one second here. Not in the top five. Airlick's a big booster. Not in the top five. Not in the top ten. All right, I need a drum roll. Not in it. Okay. Yeah. Um, Spy came in from the cold. The spy who came in from the cold. That is a great guess. It is on this list. Uh, let me find it. <laughs> what I was going to say is you I don't know write if you've looked out, at these buddy. lists from IndieWire. They're like on separate pages. You have to go back I know. It's forth. so annoying. The spy who came in from the cold is number six. So you have number, number five six. and number six. I'm just going to yeah. try to shoot for the top five here. The spy who came in from the cold, I think, might be the best spy movie mm. ever made. I really like Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. It's the best spy so- novel ever written. What's I'll the say that right textbook bond? Is it Skyfall? The, <laughs> you're gonna love the bond that they picked. It's not Skyfall. It's not Skyfall. Is it Casino Royale? It's not Casino Royale. Is it Golden Eye? It's not Golden Eye. Is it License to Kill? Is <laughs> you're getting uh you're getting is it close, from, man. Is it from Rush with Love? You're dude, just pick the one you want to pick. Is it? There's Quantum one you Solace? want to pick. Is it there's one you? Solace? No, there is one, the one you I want to pick, and pick the one that you want to pick. Honor Magic. Oh my God! Man. Is it Honor yes, Magic? Yes, it's Honor Magic. Oh yes. <laughs> that is number twelve. So you have five, six, right. and twelve. All right, I'm just gonna try to go for. The, can you give me hints? Can you give me years for the four through one, please? Okay, four through. I'm just gonna try to shoot for that because we gotta go yeah. soon. I'll write it down next time. Okay. Um, I think I think one of these isn't necessarily considered. I'll just give you the hints right now. One of them we mentioned on this podcast. Okay. No, I'll give you I'll give you hints. One of them we mentioned on this podcast. One of them is a comedy. One of them is a historic film. Everybody, a lot of people have seen it, especially people like us. And one of them, I don't know if it necessarily is is I haven't really seen it referred to as a spy film, but it probably meets the qualifications of what we're looking for. And is we've talked comedy... about the filmmaker of that one on this. This week. In this podcast. Yeah. It's Lumet. No. Coppola? Uh, mm-hmm. Coppola spy movie. Okay. Um, I'm going to wrap back around. Oh, The Conversation. Yeah. That's yeah. Number, you know, I, that's I'll allow it. Yeah. yeah. Um, is, the, is the comedy spy? No. Uh, the comedy was released it's... in 2008. We've also talked about the the we've also talked about the filmmaker on this podcast. It's not get smart. No. 2008 spy comedy. Um is the one we've mentioned Mission Impossible 1? No. Okay. Spy comedy mentioned on this podcast in a historic movie. I need years. 2008. Okay. You said 2008. 2008. 1959 and uh, 1987. 1959? 1959. And 1987. So no way out. And 1987. No way out is number four. Cool. Um, 
1959 spy movie. Is it an American movie? Yes. American 1950. Dude, I'll tell you right now, you we do not have Bond without this movie. We don't have Bond without this movie. We don't. Yeah. I, I don't think I know what this is. It's a historic filmmaker. Historic filmmaker. Historic filmmaker, historic suit, historic historic two at least two set pieces there's historic, historic set his, pieces historic visual double entendre oh fuck me it's north by northwest yes yes fuck oh god <laughs> you got me do you agree the... that yeah you're right let let the listeners know that i got that from the penis joke <laughs> <laughs> And then the 2008 comedy that is about spies. It's certainly not Tropic Thunder, even though that has an espionage element to it. No, we spoke about the we spoke about these uh, we spoke about this filmmaker when you were talking about cinematography. Villeneuve? No, no. my arch enemy, not Quaron. Is number 2008? Not Jackson. Not David Yates. I got to pull up the cinematography list again. <laughs> we didn't talk about this film, but we talked about the filmmaker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Del Toro in 08? No, that's Hellboy 2, his one good movie. Um, Not the Coens. Burton, fuck. See, the reason... I wouldn't think about this is because I forget that everyone else is stupid and doesn't acknowledge that this is one of the worst movies ever made. We also, <laughs> we also talked about the cinematographer, Connor. Yes. Because yes. this movie was shot by Chivo. It's burn yes. after reading a yes. terrible movie. That is on the list. What's, so, what's, what's, what's six through 15? Just run, run them down. Well, let me, let me just, I'll just run down all of them. Yeah, North by but, Northwest, number one. Burn yeah. After Reading is number two, man. Number Christ. two. <laughs> the Conversation is number three. Great it, film. Insane. Deserves to be there. But then it's below Burn After Reading. is insane. Yeah. No Way Out is number four. Also, yeah. in my, I know you haven't seen it, but in my opinion, it deserves yeah. to be there. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, I, I prefer The Spy Who Came From The Gold. If we're yeah, talking about the John Lee Craig. I do too. I do too. Easy. Easy. Um, then number six is the spy who came from the cold. So it's kind of yep. easy to back to back. Number seven. Um, I wonder if you should guess this one. Number seven so, is from the seventies. Just to no. say, just tell me. It's a good, it's a good. So number seven is a good double feature with the recruit. If you want to cut the recruit out and watch two other films, sure. <laughs> three days of the condor. Is Great movie. Great movie. I love that movie. Oh, fuck, dude. You were mission impossible. Fallout was number eight. That's yeah, because it's fucking <laughs> David Ayer like works for IndieWire. Yeah, Fallout I must have a... just scrolled past this. So okay. I'm sorry, dude. That's um, the Manchurian Candidate is number nine. The original Piece, Manchurian not Candidate. really a spy movie, but a great. Uh, movie. I think it is a spy movie. Eh, it's a sleep kind of. movie. Yeah, The eh. Hunt for Red October is number ten. Sure, uh, but that is about sure. a spy. That's yeah. that's that's what I'm saying. Is there aren't any spies really in? Uh, mentoring candidate. Yeah, there are deep cover people, but there aren't per se spies. There is a spy in in Hunt for an October. He's the main character. Number eleven is Enemy of the State. Never. Yes, I I'm, almost never seen. It. I have seen it. that movie. Rules. 
Uh, number 12 is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Your favorite Bond the film. best movie anyone's ever made, <laughs> ever. Number 13 is The Imitation Game. Fuck off. <laughs> Fuck off. That fuck <laughs> fucking hate that movie number 14 is bridge of spies we we all know by this point that i prefer munich munich is a better spy film but you know what movie uh, rules bridge of spies is still good bridge of spies munich is, bridge of spies is still yeah bridge of spies is still good and number 15 is black clansman which is a police movie is that a spy movie I would say no, it's an undercover cop. No, it's movie. not. It's better yeah. than undercover cop. Okay, I'm sorry. If undercover cops get to be spies, then Black Clansman is on your list, but Serpico isn't. <laughs> like, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and this article was published by Allison Foreman on IndieWire. Okay. So, yeah, that was the recruit. Give me Connor. one second to check. Uh, the where we are in terms of box office yeah, yeah, yeah do your math you know oh no no we had a total net of 16.8 million this made a profit of 55.2 so i i think from here on out he's in the black uh how much money does alexander lose uh, we'll talk about it we'll talk um, about it 55.2 plus 16.8 is 72 he is up 72 million dollars but we have we have a legit hit coming next week, if I remember correctly. I would believe so. I think it was a hit. Um, it yeah. was just it was. I it, we'll talk about it. I have not done any research into this. In my memory, it's one of those movies that's a hit, but no one likes to such a degree that they're kind of like no sequel. They kind of make a sequel. But Cole, one yeah. last thing before we yeah. leave, I I need to ask you this. Um, you said you couldn't stop thinking about Men in Black. I couldn't stop thinking about The Sum of All Fears because Bridget Moynihan is also in that movie the year before, which is very strange that she's it. in two spy movies back to back. Sure. Never yeah. seen it. Never seen it. But I I wonder now, We are. I feel like we are fully in this moment where Farrell, Damon, and Affleck are all competing for the same roles. I don't think they're competing for the same roles. And my answer to that would be next week's movie. Yeah. But are they at least in the same conversation for available roles? Because he, because, because Farrell replaces Damon and Minority Report. Yes. And I think Tigerland to me reads like a movie that was written for Damon. Like that character. Yeah, maybe, but it was too small. It was too small for Damon. I know it was, but, but Damon blew up so fast that it could have been written for Damon like early on. And then, you know, became impossible yeah, later. Maybe, and it's just odd that they all, the three of them, made spy movies all at the same time. This is this is very true. It was in the yeah. air. There's something about it. It's in the air. Bond, yeah. Bond is dying, and everyone knows it. The Born Identity is clearly the better of these. Yeah, I don't, I don't some know. of all, I've fears never is, seen. I've never seen some of all fears. So I can. It's say. it's uh. There's a very very. I don't know about offensive, problematic what if terrorist I, attack that occurred. What if I watched the Sum of All Fears tonight and then just texted you, Sum of All Fears is better than Born Identity? I would be pretty angry, I think. <laughs> I don't think you would do that, though. I think if no, you watched I have to it, edit, like, I have to edit, I have to edit the Minority Report episode. I'm not watching the Sum of All Fears tonight. 
Yeah. Wait, uh, what are you doing about the Minority Report? Oh, I, you're going to... Oh, uh, I'm not... Right. I haven't done... Okay, yeah. we, 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 we got to stop. We got to stop. Yeah. We're losing our minds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening. Uh, Connor, you want to plug the Instagram? Yeah, you can follow us at Above the Title Pod on Instagram. I have not been using hashtags, so we have no followers. Hashtags for cowards, followers for cowards. You know what would be really funny is if you made it a private account and then didn't let anyone... Uh, follow it and just can i just post it every yeah, day to the void <laughs> um i'm not gonna do that you can uh, follow if you want. know how to find me on twitter you can find me on twitter but i don't want anyone else following me so fuck you if you can <laughs> um next week we're doing daredevil yes we should have and a guest my friend sanish will be joining us sounds good i'll cut that out if that doesn't work out um uh rate review do that shit or don't i really don't care um yeah till next time take it easy oh shit i totally forgot first thing i'm gonna sign off for this one fuck the cia fuck the cia <laughs>